Welcome to Dragon Talk, everybody. Yay! That was... Oh, go on. The official Dungeons & Dragons podcast. You're Greg Tito. And That's I'm me. Shelley Mazinopoul. Look at that. And we're here to talk about Dungeons & Dragons. That's right. Yeah! Yeah. Let's and do that. Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft is definitely a hot topic for us. We're going to Hot Topic with all of our goth friends, Wes Schneider and Amanda he- Hammond. Hammond. Uh, uh, and it's going to be so much fun. I love uh, having folks who enjoy horror films talk about horror films. I've had tons of friends like that who enjoy talking through the mythology and the characters and the dark lords. And, and uh, I actually like that part of, of horror games. So I think I would really love to play a D&D campaign in which... Some of those lore type things are are part of it. Would you? I would. Well, maybe we can get Amanda or Wes to run a game for us. Ooh, I think you've you you might even want to give them some fodder for things that you're especially scared of. I might even just throw myself into the mists and hope that it takes me somewhere cool. <laughs> it might just. Who knows? Um, so, yeah, of course, we are talking to them around Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, which is coming out on May 18th. It has got so much information about how to run uh, a D&D horror game, as well as the Domains of Dread and Dark Lords, Dark Gifts, uh, three different uh, new uh scary lineages, uh, including the Hexblood, which Shelley is a big fan of. Love it. Rip off uh, your fingernails. <laughs> it's just the fingernail uh, uh, or your lineage. Toenails. Yeah. yeah. Everybody knows. I mean, I'm sure there's more to it than that, but that's the part I glommed onto. What about eyelids? How dare you? You could rip off your eyelids. That's disturbingly gross. That's awful. And uh, that's as good a time as, as any. <laughs> To make sure if you're listening to this, uh, you know, there are some horrific elements that we describe in the interview uh, with Amanda and Wes, uh, as well as, you know, the one I just mentioned about ripping off fingernails and Mm -hmm. eyelids. Uh, So if that's something that you're not, uh, you know, prepared and or comfortable with hearing, you might want to give this one a skip. Uh, It's not, you know, the full interview doesn't go into those, but we certainly do talk about some scary things, including some dreams that Shelly has had. Yeah, I mean, that's probably the scariest part well at uh, least I'm for sh- one person yeah i'm pretty sure wes is probably feeling really regretful like why didn't i ask shelly to work on this book <laughs> well you are you are working on this book I know. you're you're getting the, the word out about it yes yes and um again it is uh it is horror themed and it but it does give you the dungeon master and you the player plenty of ways to dial up or dial down how much horror you want like I, as I said in the interview, I, I played that wonderful Hexblood Sorcerer, and I played. I was in Candlekeep when I played her. Like you don't have to be, you know, in Ravenloft, totally steeped in every element of horror. You can just have a little dab here and there if you want. Little, and same with you, Dungeon Masters. That's a great philosophy. Yeah, you can use this book uh, whole cloth by setting your campaign throughout the different domains of Ravenloft connected through the mists, or it can be. Uh, just flavorful, yeah. horrific pieces that you drop into your homebrew campaign. So there's I mean, lots there. You like Shaun of the Dead is very funny. So you could even do like a Shaun of the Dead type of campaign if you want. Oh, absolutely. 
You know, yeah. you, d- you don't have to just go straight horror. But for those of you that want to, oh, you are in for such a treat. A treat. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm excited Enjoy. about that. Enjoy. We're gearing up for lots more information around uh, Ravenloft dropping everywhere uh, leading up to May 18th. So pay attention to yes. DungeonsandDragons.com as well as Dragon Plus, not to mention a few other outlets out there. And yeah. uh, our social media feeds, because we'll be Definitely. freaking you out. Uh, we got lots of previews coming up, so you want to f- make sure you follow. We have got so much more fun things planned for Dungeons & Dragons over the rest of 2021. You may have seen a recent blog post from the D&D team uh, that you should check out. It's got tons of great stuff about what is going on with the team, how they're structured, and how they're going to be coming out with great stuff for the future, uh, and part of that says that there's three more books coming. So, get ready, get your your you. your guessing hats on to try to see what is around the corner for D and D. Can't wait, and I can't wait for more of those blog posts because I I do like the uh, the inner workings and finding out uh, what were they thinking, and it's just yeah. a really good um, peek into the. Uh, the TRPG design studio. So right, yeah, cool you get to see Ray Winninger and uh, executive producer of the D and D team. Uh, you know, talking a lot about uh, his goals and what the goals for the team are. And so, check it out. It's on DungeonsandDragons dot com, and there will be even more of those uh, coming in in the months to come. Are you going to write one? I I don't know. We'll see. Uh, I we're in the middle of writing something else right now, so I don't want to take out any more writing projects, Shelley. I was working on it last night. Me too. Oh, Very excited oh, about our speaking, Dragon Talk book. Speaking of our Dragon Talk book, I just I am really excited that to uh, see the very very positive response to the the interview we did with Rufus Hound. Absolutely, um, a lot of people were really impacted and touched by the story that he shared, as were you and I. Um, so much so that we want to include that story as a as a, one of the the interviews that we talk about in our dragon talk book but it, it really it stayed with me it's still with me i still think about him i still think about that story and um i i it probably made him feel really good to see how how much he has touched people in our community by sharing that yeah absolutely so if you're just jumping into this interview uh to learn about ravenloft go back and look at uh the past catalog and the last uh, few episodes because they have all been bangers Especially really? the one uh, with Rufus. Um, it, I did not know it was going to go that direction when we started that interview, and I'm so glad that it did uh, because it was this great kind of you know masterclass in storytelling, even throughout the interview. Right? Like it was very dramatic how it was portrayed, and I loved it. And you know, I've I've actually told that story a few times uh, socially to people, and they're all like, "Wow, what an amazing story!" And I'm like, "Oh, yeah. good. It's even it's even good in a retelling, but you know, it's much better to hear it from uh, from Rufus himself." Yep. Very, very genuine. Excellent. And then, of course, you know, leave a review about how great you thought that interview was uh, on any of the podcast platforms out there. That always helps us get the word out and get more people playing Dungeons & Dragons and learning a little bit about themselves like uh, we do in our interview with Amanda and Wes as well as uh, the one with Rufus. But before we get to that interview, we have a very exciting How to DM segment, right, Shelly? We do. We are going to be, we... Me and me are going to be chatting with Matt Ford, who um, has great experience in DMing for first timers. Like, we're talking complete, absolute beginners. And as we all know, 
you don't get a second chance to make that first impression. So I hope he has some good advice because that is something I am very scared of. I don't want a first-timer's experience to be bad with D&D because of something I did. Right. So. Yeah. So that's awesome. Let's hear. And uh, hopefully he can uh, uh, you know, get even more folks on this train after this segment. Welcome to How to Be a Dungeon Master. I'm here with a special guest, Matthew Ford. And a little bit about our wonderful guest. Uh, Matthew Ford started off with Dungeons and Dragons, just like the kids in Stranger Things, which so many of our audience has. Uh, back in 1978, playing the uh, version one blue box set, drinking orange crushed soda, one of my favorites, still one of my favorites. Uh, he has played and DM'd every edition since then and has loved them all. Matt is especially passionate about teaching D&D to absolute beginners and has sparked the love of D&D in hundreds of people who have become devoted players and dungeon masters, hence the reason why we are having him today uh, on our show. Also, uh, a little bit more about Matt because I found this to be interesting. You're recently retired and dedicating... <laughs> Uh, all of your time now on Rolling Rogues, which is a nonprofit organization devoted to connecting people through tabletop gaming. You are doing the Lord's work, Matt. So welcome. I try. I try. Yeah, this is great. Thank you so much. I'm welcome so thrilled. To I've Dragon been listening. Talk. Yeah, I've been listening to Dragon Talk forever, and it's just really one of my big life goals to be on here and spread the word about well, uh, teaching absolute beginners. You know how fun it can be. Well, that is something that I. I am excited about when I uh, do uh, get a little bit more experience as a dungeon master. I, I also want to share Dungeons and Dragons with absolute beginners and new players because I do believe that playing Dungeons and Dragons can and will impact your life in such positive ways. And uh, oh, yeah. as as we all know, you don't always get a second chance to make a first impression. And sometimes people's first impressions with D&D doesn't go that well for various reasons. And they either never find their way back or uh, they find their way back years and years later and then they're they're angry that their first experience wasn't as good because <laughs> right. they could have been That's playing I mean, this whole time. How many times, you know, I've heard on Dragon Talk where people said, oh, I tried D&D once, I really didn't like the experience and it was years before I tried. Now, that's the people you're talking to. By definition, they came back to try it again. Right. There must be a lot of people who have that first bad experience that never come back and it just my heart breaks with that. And so I really want to be everybody's first best DM and give them a little taste of every kind of D&D experience so that they can fly the coop, find other DMs. I just want to be that first rung on the ladder. I want to make sure their first sessions are solid. So because you're just one person and there's lots of people that maybe want to learn how to play D&D, you cannot teach everybody. You can't be everybody's best first experience. Um, <laughs> but maybe you can teach the rest of us how to make that first experience the best that it can possibly be. And that's my goal here. Yeah, I think right. this has got to propagate. You know, I don't know the yep. clone spell. Uh, so, and we hear that can go terribly wrong. So I think I've got to really get the word out about how great it is to become a DM, even if you don't have heaps of experience. So that's one thing. And I've got you in mind, Shelly, as well. All right. uh, and then once you start, actually teaching absolute beginners is a real joy for every DM. But also it's a great way to start off being a DM. If you just kind of hit a few hints that I've got and maybe some materials that I can provide, which I'm providing for free, it might make it easier. So yeah, I think that that is what really 
really causes this to spread worldwide is to teach how to teach. And I'm a teacher at heart. I've always loved making things, making new experiences. And D&D is just the best new experience that I can give people. I just love seeing people light up and enjoy it for the first time. Yeah, there is uh, there is that moment. I know we've talked about it on Dragon Talk before, and I've talked about it a lot with my friends and coworkers. There is that moment when you see it resonate for the first time with a new player, and they like they get it, and it's yeah. it can be very fleeting. It can just be like something that passes across their face. But I I always look for that moment, and it really does make me feel really good. Yeah, you have people that come in and they've got their new character or they come a bit early and they're asking about particular things. They say, oh, it's like the fire is catching. I really like the idea of sparking the love of D&D in people's hearts where I just want to provide the spark. You know, then you see the flame kind of grow from there and that's so great to see them light up and see it take off from there. And then they become DMs themselves or they go off and join other groups. And I'm so happy when I hear about that. That's awesome. That's got to make you feel really good. Yeah. So what do we do here? yeah, well, I have some tips to, to pass along about, you know, uh, how to do that. Uh, I can dig into any of these, but, you know, I figure maybe touch on a few kind of high-level things that, uh, that then whatever you find interesting, Shelly, we can dig into more. But I've got okay. a few ideas. Okay, let's do it. Well, so let's say that you want to start, right? If you want to start a group of absolute beginners uh, where, you know, maybe you got friends and family, though I encourage get strangers around the table um, because it's great to see strangers connect with each other. I've had three couples meet at my table and go on to become a serious ongoing thing. I just went Aww. to a D&D themed engagement party for one couple uh, that, you know, and they met at my table. So oh. getting a group of strangers around, yeah, isn't that great? That's amazing. So getting a group of strangers around is good because I think that people just need to connect with each other. That's one of the why of why I do this. I think connecting in real life is super important. So let's say you want to get a group of people together, maybe friends, hopefully some strangers as well, or at least friends of friends, and you want to have an ongoing, you know, Uh, game. So I have a few tips. Uh, One is to just really minimize the friction going in. You know, the thing I hear again and again is people see D&D as this overwhelming thing. Maybe they've watched videos or they've heard about it. They've heard all the online talk. So they think like, this is not for me. It's way too complicated. And one of the things is just friction, you know, that you have to tell them over and over again, I want you to not prepare. You know, I want you to be assured you're not going to have a spotlight put on you. You don't need to be wearing funny clothes. You won't need to act. You won't need to think of your accent. And you have no obligation after this one show, after this one sort of intro uh, event where you get a taste of D&D, I won't be hurt if you do not go on. You know, it's not for everybody, though secretly we think it is for everybody. So <laughs> that's one thing. Minimize the friction going in just to sort of create the top of the funnel as wide as possible in sales terms. Yep. You have um, actually I, like hit on with that one thing, mm. hit on every single stereotype uh, somebody potentially coming into D&D has, has told me is what uh, they're opposed to about D&D. The funny costumes, yeah. the commitment, the preparation. So yes, just... Yeah, wiping yeah. that away uh, immediately seems like a great idea. Yeah, Shelly, you might remember. Um, you know, uh, I'm Gen X. I, I know that you're you're far too young to be Gen X, but oh, I'm in yeah. a generation called Generation X, and I'm the older end of it. And remember, uh, you might remember heard older people talk about uh, murder mystery parties where you oh, just yeah. invite everybody, and they had those box parties. They weren't always the greatest, but you know, it was really fun. People would come over. Think of your first session of D and D. Like, how do you make it as easy and as appealing as one of those murder mystery parties where people just know they can show up? And those actually took more preparation and more pressure than D and D actually can. So that's really good. 
And then there's the number of people you want to invite. So I would really encourage, let's say you want to have a table of five or six, you know, that magic number four, five or six that on go. What's surprising is that despite how great you think it's going to be, you should probably invite about a dozen people to that first event. What? Now, there's, how, do you, how do you handle a dozen people? I know, I know, but I have some tips for that as well because it boils down. You know, I've started like, oh, here's my ideal group of six people, but almost inevitably half of them, you know, their schedule conflicts or they like D&D so much they, they start other games or, you know, it's just not to their taste and they boil down and now you've got a table of two or three and D&D is great. You know, the occasional two or three person thing is great. But if you really want to get that camaraderie and connection and variety, you know, having five or six is great. So I think that you should really start where you think I want to invite just a bunch of people. It also takes some of the pressure off of them. You know, they know they're not going to be on the spotlight because they're sharing yeah. it with a dozen people. And I have some materials that you can see in my introduction video. If you go to my Patreon page, we have a free video about how I teach to 48 people. I've taught 60 people at once in a huge stadium where they have their character sheets, they have the ability, and we can watch the video. I won't go into details, but they engage, they make some choices, they get into little groups and they sort of cheer for each other and they roll dice, but it's really low pressure. And I, that way I can go and handle a dozen people as small compared to what I've done before. Yeah. And some materials I share can make that easier. Okay. So maybe boil them down and don't be afraid of inviting strangers and your friends of friends to come along, you know, significant others, because, you know, if they both like it, then you're set, you know, you get some people to come back later on. Another thing is really minimizing the pressure on your friends and family. This is something I'm sure is dear to both of us where you know, they definitely don't want to disappoint you. And if you make it really obvious that your heart will be absolutely broken if the session doesn't go well, it's easier for them to say, uh, I can't do it this weekend. Uh, let's do it next month. Let's do it after this. And to be nice to you, they'll want to kind of put off doing it because they're afraid of doing it and being part of some sort of horrible failure. So <laughs> I think it's important to, to pretend that, oh, it's really breezy. It's all cool. You know, it's okay if it doesn't go well. It's going to be super easy this first session, it's only the first session. And at least in your head, uh, try to convince yourself that, you know, try to take the pressure off yourself and try okay. to take the pressure off your friends and family, because that I think that can sometimes make people not want to start. For sure. Um, and some of that pressure is like, oh, I'm going to get roped in. And I'm going to be obligated to come every week or every two weeks. And, you know, D&D uh, has got some great advice on how to handle players that drop in and out of sessions. So check mm-hmm. your DMG for that. I really like the background method. Like, oh, you're still, if you're not at the table, you're still with the party. You're just in the background. You're having your own little fights and you're you're there. So when you come back in the following session, we don't have to worry about you're not missing the story. And as a DM, don't try to write things that really depend on having everybody there all the time. Say, hey, if you don't show up, that's fine. Um, and that's one of the other things I want to lead into is momentum. Right. I think it's really uh, I've seen so many things where, oh, we canceled this weekend because so and so couldn't make it. And the next weekend, the other person couldn't make it. And to be fair to them, we canceled again. And I think it's really important with these first ones to say we are meeting every two weeks. And no matter who shows up, we're playing. If one person or two people show up, that's going to be a great session as well. Or I'm going to be sitting here alone as a DM working on my notes, but I'm going to be here. So people have the freedom to say, well, maybe I can't come to every session, but at least they know they can plan it and put in their calendar. So I think momentum is, is another thing. And that's, that's sort of my starting a group advice. And I can dig in any of those, but uh, and then there's the session itself. I've got more thoughts on that. Well, I'm curious, I guess, how you handle characters in, for these brand new players. Are, are you giving them characters or are you letting them create their own? Because that, that can also be very overwhelming. I am. Yeah. And that's exactly it. I myself give pre-generated characters, the ones from the starter kit, and I've got something to share. If I can share the screen, I'll show you what I do to those starter kits to avoid overwhelming people. Um, So maybe I'll do a share while I talk, if that's all right. Okay. I'd love that. All right. So for those of you who uh, want to see this, you can watch this video on uh, on YouTube, on our D&D YouTube channel. All right. Can you see that? 
Yes. Okay. So this wow. is what the uh, out-of-the-box starter kit is for the fighter, which is the simplest class. And this is very well laid out. I think Watsi has made it as, as a Wizard of the Coast has made it as easy as possible for people to get into it. But I have seen people, again, I do absolute beginners. Like they have not rolled these funny looking dice before. That's the people I love to teach. That's where I want to spark that joy. They see this and they're like, oh, you know, it gives that impression like, wow, this is complicated. So here's what I do. I go into the PDF editor and I just wipe out a bunch of stuff on the first page. Oh my um, God. I'll, I'll show you, you can sort of see my, my little screen. Are you seeing my little screen as well as yep. my big screen? So the first page, again, looks like this. And then if they flip the page, it's the same character. And every time they flip the page, there's more information revealed. So as they get over the overwhelming sense of the first page, okay. they can, some people start flipping right away. They're curious and they can handle it. And they'll read all the cool stuff on the main page. But I've seen people stick on this first page. I tell them, this first page is all you need for the very first session. Again, that material that I share on Patreon, you can actually eventually get my script. I'll be releasing that soon. We'll oh, do cool. like how to introduce D&D to a dozen people without sweating. So you can see that it's got you know armor class, hit points. It only uh, show, it doesn't even show your skills. I focus on attributes at first. And then, you know, that's it. Basically their weapon. And look, that's easy. Anybody can handle this. And I don't see anybody get overwhelmed by that. The second page looks like this, where now I've added in the skills, only the ones they're trained in show up. Mm -hmm. Again, not that long list of skills. I start putting in if they're interested in the traits and the bonds and stuff, and more stuff comes in. And then eventually they're ready for, you know, they turn the page one more time, and now they've got the thing from the starter kit. They're all color-coded, so each class has got a different color. So I can say, oh, I, I know you're a rogue by the color. I can say, you with the blue sheets, you rogues, maybe you should, you know, take a look at this particular <laughs> skill challenge. You rogues. So that's one way I do it. So in in theory, so you said everything that they need for their first session is that very first character sheet that we yeah that's know. right that's right yeah if you get hold these materials you might choose to use the second sheet in which has the skills and some other stuff but even that has only about half the text of the final sheet and uh, you know I recommend that again to avoid that sort of sense of it being overwhelming for people I've seen that have really good effects so are you tailoring the well what adventure are you using for I guess that'll come up in the session but yeah it, it, no does, that, does, yeah that one so you can yeah you can see the video that one I write myself I borrow a lot from just existing stuff across yeah. all the different editions you'll notice some of my references are from 4e and 3e some reference Greyhawk my world is just a mishmash of all these things I've built because I've been doing this for you know, years and years um, so I write my own thing and you can see it's a script that basically you go through where they do roll dice and they succeed and fail get hit points and treasure but it's fairly linear it's li- like they're on a carriage and they're going over the mountains into the final uh, place where they're going to spend all their sessions, uh, which is down in, in uh, Timberway Valley. So uh, yeah, it's a linear thing and every single character has a chance to shine. So I have all five of those character types. So randomly assigned basically those five types that are in the starter kit. And then I write the script so each of them will discover, oh, this is, I'm the best at that. I'll say, well, who here is the strongest character? And everybody looks mm. and I show them where to look up strength. And then the person with the yellow sheet says, oh, me, I've got a plus three. So, okay, you're the strongest character. You should be the one to take on this challenge. So you see I'm giving them a chance to shine. So every, yes. all five of them have a chance to shine. Some have like the best dexterity saving throw. The rogue has a chance to shine. One of them has the best, you know, two hit bonus. And that's the uh, sort of uh, bow uh, fighter's chance to shine. And so I clev- hopefully cleverly get all of them to do that. There's a little bit of combat in the middle where all of them do some combat moves and discover their thing. But yeah, it's a way to kind of get the spotlight very limited on different people. And uh, that's how we avoid just overwhelming as they go. And those materials are, uh, are going to be available. That's very smart. Um, it also helps them understand the role of the party, the role of working together, 
yeah. that's an, another thing that a lot of people always ask with D&D is like, oh, how do you win? Like, yes. they still think yes. like they're competing with each other. So that's, right. uh, that's a very good way to quickly explain, yeah. like show them that everybody has a, a part to play here. Yeah, and that's a, that's a great segue into a point I was just about to make, which is I think the great vibe for absolute beginners and for beginning DMs is to say this is a collaborative story exercise. You know, if I'm meeting someone at a pub or something, I usually don't say, oh, I do Dungeons and Dragons and it's a game. I say, oh, I do interactive fiction. You know, are you interested in telling a story together? And that's my entry point. And that also gets everybody on the same page because then people are separate from their characters there. They say, oh, let's tell a story about these horrible things that happened to my character. So if I fail... You know, it's my character who's who's entertaining us all with this yeah. messy outcome. It's sort of like you know, Game of Thrones, I say. You know, bad things are supposed to happen in a great story. And we're all collaborating. So we try to say yes to each other. I try to say yes to their ideas and vice versa. And that can make it so that uh, they don't have to win. You know, it's not like I'm a, I'm, I'm a MMORPG. I'm not a computer that you're trying to get points out of. You know, I'm a, a collaborator. And then on the next level, from a character point of view, they're on a team with each other. Um, I'm actually based in Australia, though I'm from California. You can tell by my accent. Um, and in Australia, they, we have a very sporting culture here. So people really respond well here. Like It's like you're on a, a footy team together. And you all have your positions, but you all have a common goal. Maybe you don't get along. Maybe you have different plans. But your goal is to, is to collectively get the goal together. And I'm like your coach. You know, I'm going to give you advice. So that's another way to kind of get rid of some of that competition around the table. That's a great way. That that is a, yeah. a definitely a, an analogy that most people can can understand. Yeah, hopefully click into. Um, we've got a couple other points you want me to go into. Oh for yes, this, I uh, do. Teaching absolute beginners. Okay, great. Yes, yes. Um, this is one where uh, I think it's so important to avoid any tiny bit of uh, shame or impatience or mockery from players to each other or for you as a DM to other people. Some people's barrier is they're actually quite socially anxious, and you know, like a. A science Mike, who you had a while ago, talked mm-hmm. a lot about sort of outside the neurotypical range. Um, and some people, I think a higher than usual proportion of people that come to my table, they're dealing with somewhere on the autistic spectrum disorder or they have social anxiety and they self-identify. I'm not a clinician, so I'm not figuring this out for myself. And I think uh, because you hear from Science Mike and these other studies, this is actually a great way for them to start to stretch themselves and start to take on you know some real life skills. So it's really important to be welcoming, even if they're totally neurotypical. It's just nice to be really nice to people. It's nice to be very enthusiastic about their choices. So if they're expressing a different gender, if they're expressing a transgressive personality, if they're expressing someone that's got a kind of wild personality, it's really important to not have the tiniest bit of mocking them or shaming them or even being surprised they chose that particular thing. Um, and I think that vibe then you know gets everybody to support each other. So that's something I can speak up at length, but that's kind of the short version of, uh, of that particular thing. Is that something that you are verbally saying at the beginning of sessions or just that you do by example? I do. So in all my promotional materials, I say we welcome, we're inclusive of everybody from every background. Uh, We embrace diversity in all its forms. I usually put in especially gender diversity because I want to make sure that more women come to the table and more people who are on the LGBTIQ spectrum um, also feel welcome to come and express themselves. Um, I just really try to say, yeah, we are inclusive of everyone and we will leave nobody behind. This also goes for English as a second language. This really can scoop in so many people that otherwise might be reluctant. Um, to show up at a table where, oh, everybody's going to kind of know what to do except for me. Mm -hmm. I make it really clear. 
actually require, like usually there's more people who want to sit at my table. After that big event, I do table sessions. And usually more people show up than can fit around the table, even though my maximum is 10. (laughs) And I say, the first priority to sit down is if you have never rolled these funny looking dice before, except at my intro event. And those get first priority. And so I really reassure people like you will be amongst other absolute beginners. I think that helps people warm up as well. I think that's that is definitely true. I still have a lot of of those feelings of like everybody knows things that I don't know, you know, just because I play with a lot of people who they make the game, you know, that they of course yeah. they have decades of knowledge that they can't help. They can't eliminate that from their brain. They might not let their player know that information, but they know it. So I'm not yeah. the front You can almost one see who... the gears turning in their head where, where you can almost tell that they're holding back from like, you can see their inner voice like, don't tell her what yep. to do, don't tell her what to do. But you can actually see them thinking that. <laughs> so you can see, oh, they want to tell me something and they're restraining themselves. That's almost worse than <laughs> just saying it. It actually so is. <laughs> it actually, it definitely is. I very clearly remember playing with someone and there was a creature that he knew immediately what it was. And the rest of us were like, we don't know. Like, well, yeah, I mean, sorry, yeah. the monster manual is freaking huge. I don't know every monster in <laughs> yeah. there. By this, like, one yep. tiny clue the dungeon masters gave me. And he sat there like, ooh, oh, <laughs> oh, I can't say. Like, just shut up, okay? We get I mean, it. You know. Is, <laughs> everything is, is, is sort of a balance of many things. Because you've had other great segments on how to be a DM that really do advocate having an experienced player that can kind of be a co-DM and help explain things. Yeah. I think that also could be important. Maybe not so important for the very first session, however. So, you know, these are all balanced. You might have a, a experienced player who knows how to hold back. But yeah, if you have absolute beginners, nobody's going to say like, oh, I know that's a ghost. Or I know this vulnerable to radiance or anything like that. Right. You but know, you probably also won't clueless. put them in that position where like identify what yeah. this monster is right now. That's Anyone? right. That's Anyone? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Go or on. say, hey, you can take an action to identify the monster. You know, right. I, I teach the mechanics fairly strictly because I want players to be able to go to any table. So, yeah, I'm a game designer by trade. You know, my bio involves making video games for decades for, you know, Microsoft and Atari. So I'm really a hardcore game designer and I really respect the design process. So I really like to be quite mechanically sound yeah. and, you know, let people fail and try to do that up front. But yeah, they can usually roll and they can usually get well enough to say like, okay, I'm going to give you a few hints about this. If you're curious, if you want to take an action to assess the monster, sometimes that's people's idea of a good way to contribute to combat. Why not? Yeah, that's, that is what I usually do. Yeah. And, and speaking of that, that first, uh, you know, as the things goes, like layering on the lessons a bit at a time. So I take a teacher's approach to it. Uh, you recently had, uh, I think it was V Muse, uh, yes. who talked about being a teacher and applying her curriculum. And she said, oh, this is a lesson plan. I know how to do that. That was such a great moment. I really feel the same. So I'm a teacher, you know, by some experience, not as much as game design, but I knew what it was like to build slides and build an agenda. And each lesson should layer on something else. Like each session, I say, I'm going to teach these three important basic concepts. And we're talking like, what's ranged combat like? Or what is it like dealing with a stealthy monster? And just have a few of these things. Okay, here's, this battle is going to be all about taking saving throws instead of them hitting your AC. Let's teach that. And I just think of two or three things with each scene that I'm trying to get across and illustrate. And session by session, I have like a 12-session sort of first season, as I call it, where by the end, you've gone through all the basics. And it's just like making a lesson plan. So let each layer settle in and make sure people understand it and walk over and point to their sheet and say, hey, here's the number you're looking for. Just really make sure you don't leave anybody behind. As long as you take it a bit at a time, anybody can learn this stuff. And then you've enabled them to go anywhere for any DM. That's a great feeling. That is. That, that's 
yeah, just breaking it down. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things with that is, uh, is you know, different types of D&D. So I really, I like to make sure that all my sessions have a sampling platter. Some players are really going to respond to crunchy combat. And some are going to respond to cinematic combat, like they've seen, you know, on streams, where it's breezy and more like, you know, uh, wild and fast. Some people are going to love exploration. Others will love puzzles. Some will love their character themselves, and they might want to act their character, or some want to just, you know, stay at a distance. And so I try to give them scenes where each type of thing, you know, gets its little moment to shine, each type of D&D. And then afterwards, I can say, like, hey, if you like this scene then you should look for DMs that really emphasize this. And here's the kind of themes and the kind of words those DMs will use. So if you go and meet up or, or if you're talking to people, you can say, oh, I'm looking for a more rules light you know, version of the play, or I like a very character and story heavy version. Just give them the language to start saying what they like because you know, they'll resonate with different things. So layering that on is really important. Well, how do you handle when you have these large groups of people? I mean, certainly you're going to have players that are going to like lots of different types of games. How do you... Um... How do you appeal to a wide audience? Yeah, it's hard. Of course, you know, you only have so much time. And so I just try to cover the most likely hits. Like, mm-hmm. okay, let's talk about interesting moral choices, combat, and what my character can do. Those yeah. might be three general areas that probably somebody likes one of those. And then you can hone in on each of those, maybe across the next few sessions. You can say, okay, I'm going to go one step deeper. What does it mean to know what my character can do? Well, what about the soft skills versus the combat skills? And immersion and story, you know, okay, I'm going to tell a story that intrigues them. And now I'm going to get into a story that gives them sort of big mental visions of what the world is like. So again, you can break down each of those areas on what they like the most. You can't cover it all in one session, but if you do a good enough job, hopefully they'll come back for sessions two and three and you keep stepping through those things. I also use feedback forms. I mean, I'm a game designer, so I love actually objective feedback, like rate me from one to five, basically on each of these, does this session have too much or not enough of these few categories. And in my videos on Patreon, I actually pull out the surveys and I go through them and show how I analyze the feedback from players filling out these anonymous forms on how well I did, because each group has a different feel like, oh, this group is actually, they don't care about combat very much. I can actually ease off on the amount of combat and they really think they want more exploration. So I'm going to crank up some of the exploring part. You know, feedback is great for any designer. So curious, because your background is with so much with um, video game design. So Mm. You can do a lot in a video game, but you you can't do everything. That's just by its very nature. But Dungeons and Dragons, you could really try to do absolutely anything, and you don't always know as a dungeon master what the players are going to want to try. Do um, do you employ any tenants from video game design when you're teaching these new players? Like, do you try to keep things on rails a little, or do you just let them go whole hog and see what this game can really do? Yeah, there's some tricks, aren't there, that, um, you know, video games have some great tricks to actually channel people without them realizing they're being channeled. And some is like using the big shiny object. So have something where it's a landmark. People have a tendency to go towards landmarks. Peril is really important. If you're having trouble keeping your players on rails, you give them a really strong call to action. Uh, Like I like starting people off not in a pub where it's very mm-hmm. directionless, but in jail. Like, you know, I have oh. a fairly linear thing where they don't have a lot of choices. They get captured and kidnapped and thrown in jail, and now they have to break each other out. Like, they're blindfolded and manacled, and you can see in my video, the first thing they do is, like, release each other from their bonds and taking off their hoods and figuring out how to get out of the cage before the torturer comes to take one of them away. So yeah. a great, urgent thing was all about yep. helping each other, you know, and that gets them bonded with each other. So it starts off quite constrained. 
Uh, so I don't tell them you're not allowed to do that in this. I just put them in a situation where it doesn't make sense for them to, you know, uh, try to sing a song or drink beer. They don't have their stuff. You know, I take everything away from them and focus them down and then give them their stuff back a bit at a time. So that's kind of yeah. the video game trick, you know. So how many video games start off where you're in prison? You know, this is like a Skyrim type trick. You know, the Elder Scrolls do this. So I, I borrowed that and that works really well. Um, also, I think really new players, often they're overwhelmed by choice. And I've heard other DMs say this on your segment, where I'll suggest like a choose your own adventure. Like, well, your basic choices might be this, this, or this. Now, if you want to do something else, let me know. And I'm totally open to it. But very often they'll pick one of the things you lay out. Um, so that can help, especially with really new players. Um, I try to say yes, but uh, as other advice has said, I try to say yes, if you roll high enough. That's one good trick. Right. The other one is, Yes, when you get to this level. So if they want to do something crazy, I say, ah, you should really try to become an assassin or you should really try to become an evocation wizard because you can do that. You'll just have to level up a bit first. Um, so you know that's another trick to use to keep people constrained, to get them looking forward to playing more. But also, here's why I can't you know, use my firebolt to destroy all the enemies and blow everything up. Say, oh, that sounds more like fireball and it's awesome, but you've got to level up before you can do that. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah, and I've, I've, that, that's covered a lot of those things. Is, is you know that starting that constrained area, layering on those lessons, and you know giving that little taste. Um, you know, ultimately, if you're not if you're worried, Shelley, about like what are players going to do, if you really look at it from a game design point of view, my most mechanical point of view, it gets really simple. Where the, the basic idea is, they look at what their character can do, they roll a twenty sided die, and they add a number to it, and that number is based on what their character can do. And then you as a DM, you try to make both failure and success enjoyable. And that's really all that it is. Anytime yeah. you're stuck, it's like, what do you want? Let's try to stick to what your character can do because you're going to be more satisfied. They naturally want to win. Roll D20, add something. I've got a number in my head. And we're going to branch the story a little bit either way. And the down branch is going to be just as exciting as the up branch. And as long as you keep that loop going and we're making a collaborative story together, if we all say yes and we all sort of do that, we're on the same team and we're going to have a great story by the end of the night, things turn out okay. They really do. Yeah. I like how you also said you're going to make failure really fun too because that I think that's, is, right. that's an important part of the game, important part of life. You got to learn to roll with it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so fail forward is a great bit of advice you hear uh, mentioned a lot. And also just to, to be separated, like you as your player can be separate from your character just enough that mm -hmm. you can sort of take joy um, in, in your character failing. There's uh, there's one D&D podcast where I've really got to give a shout out to. It's called D&D is for Nerds. It's an Australian oh, yeah. podcast. It's my absolute favorite. Like by far, it's my favorite D&D podcast. And I think Adam is very close to my type of DMing. He's quite mechanical. Um, and, but a great storyteller. and just But the rapport that the players and the DM has, those players really know how to separate out and laugh at their own failure. There are some amazing things they've done where you can just see how well the players adapt and how the DM completely makes them fail you know, because it's by the rules and the players roll with it. It's a great example of rolling with that. So I recommend that very much to get that vibe, a feel for that vibe. Very cool. Yeah. Now I can right. dig in any of these things, but uh, I could go on and on, but there's so much to cover. I know there really is, but this is like this, it's really good. Um, I mean, just good general advice. I didn't, I would dig into any of these. Do you have, is there, is there anything else that you 
want to well, share? Well, let's talk about converting players to, D, to, to, to DMs. So one yeah, of my missions, you, know, we, you talked earlier about, okay, well, how does this turn into more DMs to propagate, to do all that thing that spreads things around? And how do we inspire players to become DMs? I've had players, again, absolute beginners, and in less than a year, they're DMing themselves. And that's because I, you know, of course, the credit mostly goes to them and to the materials from Wizards that makes it really easy. I advise them to use the starter kit and all those things. So that makes it easy. I can't take much credit. But I think what I try to do is, is inspire them, you know, in a few key ways. So one is, again, keeping your style super simple and approachable and focused on new players. If you really focus on leave nobody behind, make sure absolute beginners are comfortable. It takes pressure off of you as a DM. There's a lot less to keep track of and you have you have to read the room a lot more. So it calms you down and you don't have to be shuffling through your papers. You just say, is this person confused or not? And you can focus on that. So that helps uh, and that models that. And if you DM like a newbie yourself, you, know, you can admit that you're sort of a newer DM and that can also relax your players. And it gets other players to say, oh, well, I guess I can DM because my DM here is saying, you know, that they're fairly new to it as well. Um, you know, the bare bones, I think it's pretty important as much as I would love to support the commercial enterprise. Don't I think not necessarily don't show up with all the books and all the maps and all the figurines because all your players are like, oh, I have to buy and read and memorize all of that. Maybe they don't have very much money or maybe they just don't want to read that much. Right. And it can be a little, I think it'd be a little confronting. Show up and say, look, all you need is the player's handbook and the monster manual or the digital equivalent of the two. And you're ready to DM. Um, you know, the starter kit, of course, you know, has those things kind of built right in. It's very, that's a very affordable price, you know. So you can model that by showing uh, that you can do it sort of bare bones, a bit of a punk DIY, you know, uh, attitude. I think that helps a bit. Um, I think that collaborative story vibe really helps because, again, DMs see like, oh, I'm not a confrontational situation with my players. I'm in a collaborative situation with my players. I think more people are willing to sign up for a collaboration rather than a confrontation because there's a winner and loser. So I think that really helps. Um, like I said, you know, just keep in mind the basic mechanic is as long as people are rolling D20 and adding something that has something to do with their character sheet, you're winning. You're doing fine. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's really easier than you think. Um, and it's really important that DMs remember, and I remind DMs, you as a DM, you should be having fun too. Don't be a martyr. Don't feel like it's a job. Don't feel like your needs come last. Ask yourself, am I having fun? What will I enjoy DMing? Did I enjoy that last session? If I didn't, what you have the right to change, you know, what happens if, if you didn't like that last session. And frankly, it might be a player that's just, you know, they're not a bad person, but their vibe doesn't quite fit with your table. Maybe you could help them find a different DM that's more of that vibe. Um, don't be afraid to sort of be honest with yourself. Like, I'm not enjoying this. I've talked to DMs. They started dreading their sessions because of right. a particular player. I said, you got to figure out a way to get that player to move on and give them a chance to change. But let's face it, sometimes it doesn't happen. So yeah. it's okay as a DM to put yourself on that list of people who should be really enjoying it. And that's, uh, that, I think that all those things will help players step into DMing that much sooner. Well, I, I do think that you're being very humble when you say you cannot take <laughs> credit, but you're the one who's introducing people to Dungeons and Dragons. So if they're not- Hundreds of if, people. <laughs> if they didn't have fun playing, they're not going to want to try Dungeon Mastering. Sure. But, oh, that's right. Oh, yeah. First, so, you get them to, to love playing. Yeah, yeah. Love, uh, to love playing with a good DM is the first step towards being a, a, a DM themselves, definitely. Do you, I mean, are you just kind of of the mind that anyone can be a dungeon master or do you see things in players that make you think, oh, that's, that person's going to be a good dungeon mm. master? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I think uh, the ability to say yes, the ability to say yes to both success and failure, uh, to, to embrace that. So if I see players that can kind of laugh off failure, uh, that's really good. I think also players that roll with each other's suggestions. So players that do that improv thing by saying, oh, I like that idea and I'm going to roll with it. They're paying attention to what the other players do. As a DM, as we've heard over and over again, one of the most important things is read the room, figure out what your players are saying and what they're feeling and roll with what your players do. You know, players love themselves and their own choices and a DM should really reflect that back. So I think a player that does that to other players is probably a good sign to encourage for DMing. But that said, sometimes it's really surprising. You know, I never try to show it, but I've had players come up to me and say, oh, by the way, I started DMing. And I try to like, you're the one who started DMing out of my whole table. It can really be surprising. And they go on to do some amazing things because, and they might have a style different from me. So I'll start saying, ah, you, once you've gotten the hang of it here, I know some other DMs that are really your type of DM. You know, I'll do these pub meetups where I'll bring people to the pub again in dozens of, uh, or a dozen people. I have color-coded stickers that say what kind of game they're into and how experienced they are and whether they're DMs, they can find each other. And no just way. basically like a speed date. Yeah, it's like a speed dating thing where they all go around, you know, make them change places and talk to each other. And they go away with like two or three new groups being started. And I usually try to buttonhole particular players like, hey, you know, you really should consider being a DM. Here's a starter kit. You know, this is what, what the donations on my patron patreon pager for you know when people donate i have more ability to give away materials and do more of these events i'll give them a starter kit i'll give people dice just for showing up and just again make it as easy as possible and again i've seen amazing amazing things happen at those kind of meetups that's so cool it's kind of like speed dating like it is. Ma- it's just it's like, like ma- matchmaking. You're just like. You it know. is. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll share that material as well. You know, so one of the materials I'll give away on the site is, is, you know, a, a poster and some basically colored dots. Like what kind of RPG? Those areas that I talked about, like story heavy versus combat and mechanics heavy mm-hmm. uh, versus kind of alt, you know, like they want to have a theme that's just a little bit outside the mainstream. Those are all things that I have color coding for. That's so cool. That's so smart, yeah. too. Ah, yeah, I've, I've just done it through iteration. You know, I've done this for many, many years and we're growing all the time. So uh, yeah, I, I want to keep, I literally, my, I have a goal where I want to know that I or someone I've directly taught, uh, I've introduced a thousand people to D&D. Like that's the benchmark I want to hit. You know, I'm already past a hundred, I think personally. Um, but once I can start tracking, like have we collectively sparked the joy of D&D in a thousand people? Okay, that's the first milestone to hit. And oh also gosh. have I trained a number of DMs? Like ha- have I seen players turn into DMs, you know, say a hundred times? You know, it's another big milestone. You know, I'm from I'm from tech and from the creative industry. I like giving myself milestones and metrics and things like that. So I, that's, that's one you can try to hold me to. <laughs> I, I, I will. Pretty soon, we're just going to see a huge surge in D&D in Australia. And everyone's like, what's so. happening in Australia? So. And I will say, <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah. I know what's happening there. I know where it's That's all right. You from. know where it starts. And it starts. And you can see on our videos, you know, we're very fortunate and we've done a really good job, frankly, of trying to stay COVID free. So people are meeting around the table. You know, for all of you out there, there is hope. You know, table, meeting people around the table for D&D safely is coming very soon. And it's just great. Uh, there's uh, so much pent up desire and just get people together for real to tap into that, you know, is, is yeah. going to be a great wave. So I think this is a huge opportunity for DMs and players to know the wave is coming just like it recently did in Australia, where we can get together and play D&D together and just ride that wave, you know, just consider this your call to action. Like now's the time to do it. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, that's going to be amazing. Uh, and yeah. I think it's it's super generous of you also to provide so many of these materials. Uh, do you want to explain a little bit about your Patreon and and where people can yeah. find it and 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 all of the materials that they'll find there? 
Yeah, thank you. So patreon.com is a site where you know, creators can take little bits of money, uh, as little as $1 a month, uh, to, uh, to to distribute materials. I have stuff for free. So all of my sessions just go to my Patreon page. If you go to Patreon, it's like patron, but with an E, patreon.com, and look for Rolling Rogues. So you can do slash Rolling Rogues, all one word. You know how to spell rogue. You play D&D, <laughs> so Rolling Rogues, uh, plural. Um, so once you go there, you'll see all of the sessions. So you'll be able to see. And if you want to learn D&D, if you're sitting there saying, oh, I've watched a lot of D&D, but I still don't quite know how the mechanics work. Remember, I start from the absolute beginning and I try to make it entertaining. And there's an interesting sort of story and universe. So you can go there. You'll see my introduction show. Uh, this last one that's posted is me with 48 people in the room all rolling dice and getting through it. It was and like then, D&D school. It's so cute. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It feels like way. And I feel like a teacher doing it. It's an awesome feeling. Uh, episode two is getting 10 people around the table and now they're in jail and breaking themselves out and they step through from there. So on patreon.com slash rolling rogues, you can see all that stuff for free. Then you'll see there's some videos that can unlock, right? So even if $1 a month, the first thing that you unlock is my commentary sort of reality show style. <laughs> I don't dis- I just basically comment. <laughs> That's right, exactly, into your <laughs> lane, Shelly. So I comment on how that show went and what I thought the player choices and maybe drop a bit more lore in there and kind of connect things up. So you can say like, oh, Matt's mentioning this bit of lore they discovered. It must be important. So that's a nice little insider clue. Nice. And then with a little bit more, you can get to this level of videos where again, where now as a DM, I open up my laptop, I show you my script, I show you my materials, and I step through, here's the session coming up and here's how I'm preparing for it. And here's what I think will happen. And then on the next video, say, hmm, how did that go? <laughs> uh, what was the survey results and, and what are the notes that I took and what worked and what didn't and how am I tweaking the process? So it shows me in the middle of my creative process, which I share. And then on top of that, I'll actually share the actual materials. So you'll be able to download materials where you'll get my introduction script. I believe just an open source. So this is a negative profit enterprise, right? I take donations, but you know, money is not the problem here. I'll happily spend my own money to fill the gap. But the more that gets donated, I could do more shows on more stages, on bigger stages, give away more materials and books. So your donation doesn't just unlock these videos. It really helps an important enterprise where, you know, helping get everybody uh, spark the love of D&D. So you can really spread it far and wide. Yeah, Patreon is like that. But if that's, a, if that's not your thing, also on Twitter, frankly, I'm just going to point to Patreon and other things. But I'm Matthew M. Ford on Twitter. Uh, that's Matthew with two T's. Uh, that was back when I thought Twitter was a serious platform. I was like one of the first people on Twitter. And I thought, <laughs> I'm going to have my real name. I'm going to use the same handle and everything. because that's the responsible thing to do. I could have done so many cool handles, but no, I'm Matthew M. Ford. Uh, so that, there I am on Twitter. And that shows links to all the other stuff as well. So please that's look awesome. me up. And I, I answer all patrons. So the great thing is, uh, you know, if you're a patron, even a dollar a month, get into dialogue with me. I really want to hear what you think. You know, that dollar is a great filter that you're serious enough that I really want to listen to your ideas. So that's a great way to collaborate as well. You are very generous. Oh, I love it. Yes. It's, it's important. It's going to save the planet. We can save but the world with D&D. D&D that's a whole is going to save it. Yes. Get, yeah, get in on right. it. Start learning. Start teaching. Yeah. Um, start dungeon mastering, too. Yes. Right. Start DMing. Start playing. Get into that imaginary world. It's great in there. It really is. It's better yeah. oftentimes than the real one. Well, yeah, it certainly is uh, easier on the planet as well. You know, if we're spending a lot of our time, you know, in the virtual world, imaginary and otherwise, you know, that means that we're not tromping around putting footprints all over the place. So like, get together around a table, you know, have, a, have a, a, a glass of beer afterwards and talk about it and, you know, simple pleasures. Go for it. I know, right? It really is. Uh, is there anything else that you want to cover that we didn't cover? Oh, well, I, I've, I've got I mean, plenty I know of material. Can, I don't know how to... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's so much dig to dig in. into. If you want to ask about anything particular, I'm happy to dig in, but uh, there's, there's, there's plenty more. 
there it well then you're gonna have to be a repeat guest <laughs> okay yeah yeah i'll tell you how things have gone um we'll be finishing the first season you know so i have people go through again about a 12 session uh step where they get to a nice climactic point uh with a big boss battle and then we go on to season two which i'll also be broadcasting where then i i collect uh players into one table that's much more like traditional DD. so if you're looking at episode one and say oh it's pretty tutorial in nature i i, I like matt i like these players but i don't want to feel like i'm being taught DD. Right. season two will start getting broadcast and that's where okay they're all people who've learned the basics i still like layering things on but now yeah. we really get get the guns going right and, and the challenge level gets up and the world gets a lot wider all those constraints that i have my thing is actually a sandbox. I have a wiki that I've built up over 10 years where I have a map and a grid where no matter where they go, there's all kinds of stuff to run into. Um, so you can see much more sandbox, traditional D&D with a great story that builds up thanks to the players' contributions. Um, and so that'll be coming soon. You, you get on the stick now to see how our sessions go and get to know our players, but it will evolve and there's more to, more to learn there. Well, I think, I mean, we know a lot of people do learn how to play D&D by watching people play D&D. Uh, and I think that it's a really a unique offering to show new players learning because they're, it, it, release, it releases some of the stigma and some of your own insecurities because you're seeing other people ask those same questions. and Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. And because I go really slow and I leave nobody behind, you know, I'll stop everything and I'll walk over and point to the sheet and say, okay, you've rolled this. You see your strength there is plus three, that plus that. I, I, I will do the math for them if they have a bit of, uh, of dys, dys, dysnumia, you know, if, like if math makes them panic, you know, we fill yeah. in and fill that in and just make sure that we're really being very inclusive and make sure that they've got the concept. And as that happens at the table, you watching the video will get it as well. And it's a video. You can always fast forward. If I'm gassing on about something you already know, just, you know, click ahead a couple of minutes right. and uh, the action will resume. Okay. Well, it's definitely a good resource to share with any uh, friends and family that or yeah. thinking about taking the plunge, let them watch. Yeah, yeah, let them that's right. Yeah, that people. first intro, that first intro video, uh, you can actually get those character sheets. I've linked to the, the oh, Wizards nice. of the Coast character sheets, which are distributed for free. So you yep. can actually follow the character sheets that I'm referring to, and you can actually kind of play at home, watch that video, yep. and roll your own dice, and you know, you, you can probably put it together yourself. And see if you can find those moments on when the, it resonates with those players for the first time. Yeah, when that spark yeah, look ignites, that light. look for that look spark for that. igniting yep. in their eyes. Yeah, it's a great feeling. So cool. Um, thank yeah. you so much for oh, thank um, you. just the amazing resources that you're providing for your sharing your knowledge and um, willingness to to come here and be a guest on Dragon Talk. Uh, I know that there's more that, to cover. Um, so I would love to have you come back. I would love to come back and thank you so much for inviting me. This has really been a life goal of mine. Uh, so now tick and I want to come back again. Maybe I'll have Bucket a Hogwarts style academy someday. You know, we'll mm. be, we'll, we'll, we'll I'll have like a, a wizarding school for, for teaching how to play and, and uh, how to teach D&D. You know, that that's, uh, I might come back uh, at, at that anniversary as well. I, I love that. I love that idea. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And for anyone who is listening and watching, if they're, um, if there's anything we talked about that you want us to dig into more when when Matt returns as a guest, let me know. Let us know because, you know, that will be a great way to find out uh, what's resonating, what types of things people want to hear more about. So Definitely so. Share I'm away. Totally, yeah. I love feedback. I love hearing what, what we can do better. So, yeah, hit me up. Awesome. Thank you so very much for being here. Great. Uh, so early so in the morning Shelley and for Greg you and everybody, too. producers. Yeah. Oh, no, that's fine. Not a problem. <laughs> it's a great way to start the day. Awesome.
what'd you think? Oh, what a fantastic fag band. Uh, yeah. So lots of great stories there and great tips. And pretty sure he's going to have to come back because I had a feeling we barely scratched the surface. That's true of almost all of our uh, interviews as well as segments, but it is a a huge topic bringing in new players and how to navigate that is is advice that all DMs should have. And he's got some great ideas. And please uh, make sure to check the show notes if you want access to some of... um, those great documents um, that that Matt was talking about. He's extremely generous, and he has put together a ton of resources. So um, check all that out in the show notes, and of course, let him know what you think. We'll be super appreciative uh, yeah. if you do that, and check out uh, you know giving a review for Dragon Talk on all of your platforms. We don't tout that enough, but it is always good uh, when you're in the app checking out those those show notes. Just give us a nice little. <laughs> thumbs up uh, and hopefully we get even more folks interested in what we're talking about here and playing this fantastic game. Maybe even they might want to pick up uh, a little product a little book coming out called Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft which we've already talked about but I can't wait for this interview that's coming up. It's going to pale in comparison to the YouTube video that's out there right now with uh, (laughs) these folks, right Shelly? Oh my gosh, yes. Um, there is a wonderful video out there that introduces Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. And you can also find that link in our show notes. Because again, Ryan makes it easy for you. You don't have to go anywhere but Dragon Talk for all your news. It is such a good video. It gives you a great overview of what's in this book. You'll hear from Wes Schneider, Amanda Hammond, Kate Irwin, and of course, Chris Perkins makes a special appearance in this video as well because it takes a village to make a great book. Even a haunted uh, village that's full of were-ravens, it still takes that It does to, to make this. That's definitely the kind of place you want to go to with lots of people on your side. That's Don't right. And so we're going to have a couple other people on our side right now as we get to talk to two of those folks about their experiences making this book as well as what's in it. So let's do it. Okay. Everyone, let's welcome Amanda Hammond and Wes Schneider to Dragon Talk. Yay! Yay! Woohoo! <laughs> this is totally the theater kids welcoming the goth kids to this podcast. <laughs> Fair. Yes. I mean, the best. I don't try to be goth. I just kind of like look like this. <laughs> I'm just drawn that way. Yeah, I'm just drawn this way. <laughs> Well, this is uh, apropos because we'll be talking to you about Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. Uh, Wes and I have been doing some fun Lori Should Know's deep dives on the Domains of Dread and getting to know a little bit more about it. And Amanda, you were able to work on uh, the Barovia section of this book, right? I was, yeah. I worked on the Barovia section and the Lamordia section and a couple of the genre horror sections. Um, It was a great opportunity. Nice. And you worked on this before you were a full-time wizard, even. I was. It's a wonderful coincidence that I was a freelance writer on a couple of projects, including this one, um, and had no idea that when the book was coming out, I would be a senior designer on the team. (laughs) How perfect is that? Yeah. You just cast a hex and things seem to happen. Maybe it has to do with the the necklace you have around your neck. Yes. For those of you watching at home, because I'm nothing if not incredibly cheesy and on brand at all times... (laughs) Oh, this pendant that is around my neck 
uh, was a gift from a friend who got it from a website called Mini Museum, and they uh, have filled this pendant with grave soil from the ancestral castle of Vlad Tepes, uh, aka Strahd, aka Dracula, aka the person who all this is about, right? How does one get the grave soil? I think it's just normal soil. I think they call it grave soil just to sound cool. I think but it's I just mean something like from, from around the area. Okay. I mean, it, yeah. It basically it's somebody playing in the dirt selling a thing for like, you know, however much this costs. <laughs> so that you can, so cool. so you can mention cool. it in your, it totally you can mention in your interview about when you're going to start working on Ravenloft. You're like, all right, yeah, you're in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. It's like, let me tell you how dedicated I am. Also, look at that picture behind me. <laughs> What's that for those that people can't see? It is an old playbill from a Dracula production, I believe, that actually Wes's husband, Russ, gave me uh, a long time ago for for Christmas as a gift. So uh, that is only a couple of the many Dracula-themed things that I have in my house because nerd. (laughs) Dracula nerd to be. Strahd-themed things, if you will. So I like that you guys have a history Yes, Wes and Amanda, a sure. a gothic lineage <laughs> history. Something trying to tie it back here, but right, you're spooky part of a cousin. Spooky nerds that go way back. So yeah, when, uh, Wes, yeah, when when did you two meet? When did you guys start working together? Oh, jeez. Um, Sorry to put you on the spot. A while ago. <laughs> that's when like, I'm just like, just, when was it, Wes? How you're leading it, Wes. That's so Greg, just leading with those hard-hitting questions. Right yeah. off the bat. Right. How do you know each other? <laughs> Where were you on April 14th? No, it was. It's actually funny. We met uh, on the on the Gen Con showroom floor, uh, yeah. like back in 2012, 13. I realized because I was going through old emails and I have in my freelance email that I've used forever and ever, I have a whole bunch of old stuff. It was 10 years ago this summer. Wow. Yeah. Anniversary. Yeah. So August. Yep. And, and we're still both in our 20s. And you were children when you met. It yep. was probably a, like a, a daycare. Um, and were you Damn drawn it. to the grave? soil around amanda's neck did you like walk, <laughs> walk right up to her and like hey uh actually i know that smell you know, actually uh, i'll let amanda uh tell how we we ended up running into each other oh my gosh well i had been going to gen con for a long time even at that point um i have been i think my first year was 2006 at gen con and just going as a fan really getting involved in the tabletop industry uh, realizing that, uh, you know, I, that I loved the tabletop industry because it was so accessible at places like Gen Con, you could go and you could meet various industry professionals and people who were really well known. And Wes uh, was one of the many, many, many folks that I met. Um, but I hit a point after I'd been going for a few years where um, I had been a journalist and a communication specialist in a degree in, in journalism and creative writing. And I wanted to uh, get into a career that I knew I would be happier in. I knew I was looking to change careers. And so it, in 2011, I finally went, okay, well, I think I would be great in the tabletop industry. I'm really interested in becoming a writer or an editor. I'm going to approach some of these folks who I know attend this convention 
and see if anyone is interested in what I thought would probably be, uh, you know, the most um, reliable thing to get into at the time was freelance editing. So I went around to multiple folks at multiple companies, giving out business cards and saying, hey, you know, I've been playing tabletop games. I'm a professional writer and editor. And, you know, if you have anything of interest, please keep me in mind. And Wes was the person uh, that I met uh, over at Paizo at the time, uh, who I believe you're editor-in-chief at the time. Yep. <laughs> Wes was the big cheese. Um, and so I handed him my card and, you know, told, gave him my spiel and everything and, and said, oh, do you have any freelance editing available? And Wes, without missing a beat, uh, said, well, we don't have any freelance editors that we use, but are you interested in game design? What? And immediately sort of went like... I could do that. I could do game design. I don't think I can do game design, but just my mouth said, sure, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Yep. Yep. And uh, then he and I got in contact afterwards. They had me uh, submit some monster pitches for one of the old adventure path lines and everything just kind of spiraled from there. I got involved in lots of companies and doing lots of work and sitting here at Wizards today. That's amazing. Reunited. I love it. <laughs> and it's perfect for this product, too, because so much of, I think, your uh, proclivities uh, is all about this, this, this horror-themed stuff mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's going to be front and center for Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. So we've been talking about it a lot here on the podcast, but Wes, for, for folks, like what, what can we give for them? You know, what's the overview of, uh, of this book and how would uh, you, know, you do this in an elevator pitch trying to get a D&D fan who's into horror to uh, want to pick it up? So this is Dungeons and Dragons Does Horror. This is a return to the Ravenloft campaign setting from back in the 80s and 90s. This picks up uh, pretty much right where Curse of Strahd, one of 5th edition's best-known, best-loved adventures, drops off and is like, hey, did you enjoy Strahd? How about more? How about more flavors of horror? How about more domains? How about more spooky times? How... How do you do that? How do you run that? What's the world you can set it in? How you can create your own nightmares? Uh, how you can create horror stories that are right for you and your players? Monsters, settings, characters, etc. Nice. Nailed it. Nailed it. It's like you've, it's like you've done it before. <laughs> Almost um, like this has been like, like I've been huge saying, part of my life for a year. I like so one thing you say, you know. For fans that that like horror, but what I really like about this book too is that there are many different um, types of horror, but also many different levels of horror. So, like, you don't have to have a campaign that is just completely one hundred percent steeped in horror. I like that you can add a little bit here, add a little bit there. Like, you're I played um, a hexblood character. And and a can one of uh, the Candlekeep Mysteries adventures. So I w- it was not a horror themed adventure, but my character really freaked out the rest of the party <laughs> when I started yanking off my thumbnails and leaving <laughs> them behind. Um, so That's I, I Shelley, it that hundred <laughs> percent creepy, and the party really was grossly disturbed in the best possible way. But I will say, after that that game ended, two of them were like. So how do I get to be one of these hexbloods? <laughs> like, oh, 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 look at Have that. I got the book for you? <laughs> Have I got a book for you? So, um, yeah, I think like there is a lot of wonderful customization options in there. Maybe you could, Amanda, perhaps speak to uh, how would a, a dungeon master or player just kind of pour up bits of their campaign? Sure. Um, so... 
you know, like you said, there are lots of, there are levers and dials, right, that that dungeon masters have at their disposal to make their game a little bit horror-tinged all the way up to, you know, full-on survival horror. Uh, everything is terrifying and the, the PCs um, potentially have no hope. Maybe they're trying to gain some hope. Um, oh. So... I, th- I think really horror is all about tension and suspense. And I think when you're introducing those elements uh, in any sort of form, that is what starts a game on the track to becoming a horror game. So, you know, I know a lot of folks who have long ongoing campaigns and, uh, you know, a lot of times they'll ask the question like, oh, how can we do a little bit of horror? How can we do a horror sort of side plot or sidetrack and then get back to the rest of the normal campaign? And I think that that is entirely possible. And the way to do that is indeed to ramp up that suspense to create something uh, that uh, has got tension. Maybe there's a, a time clock that's running. Uh, there's an unknown factor that's happening. So it's something like, uh, you know, your PC's discovering something that's scary through little pieces of the environments um, and weird implications and things they don't understand and there being the slow reveal of what is happening uh, to have caused this, uh, maybe with a final reveal that if they don't, stop something, find something, um, accomplish something, then something really awful will happen. And, that, and that's a perfect way to introduce horror into an ongoing campaign that can then, after that plot is resolved, shift back onto something that's, um, you know, a little more normal for that game. I love all that because, you know, there's something that gets lost, I think, with a lot of just broad descriptions of horror, which is like, oh, it's the monsters or it's the gore, mm-hmm. it's the slashy knives, it's, it's that. Mm-hmm. But so much of horror is the, the two hours leading up to that event, right? And yeah. uh, is there uh, stuff within the book about how to kind of create those tension moments using, uh, you know, Techniques that are usually cinematic, uh, but for a, a, a you know a, a tabletop role playing game can feel a little bit um, you know not just the heroic fantasy that is the tropes that a lot of dungeon masters lean on. So yeah, what's, what what are some of those things that people can do when they take that tension and build it over the course of a session or a campaign? Well, we've got a whole section in the book that talks about pretty much that. Uh, right. So it's almost like I knew. <laughs> almost. Uh, so one of the one of the big elements for that is like, all right, if you are going to look to create an atmosphere, look to create suspense, look to create tension in the course of your game, how do you do that? And this is something that you can, you know, it's right at home in a horror game, but this can work like for any type of D&D play. Um, but what are the techniques to create that atmosphere? Like, how does that, as a player, how can you feed into that um, as a DM, how do you build that? So on and so forth. Um, so we have a pretty lengthy discussion about like, all right, so you want the folks around your table to actually, you know, be leaning in, to be getting really invested in the, like, here's what the story is, like growing that atmosphere, so on and so forth. Um, so we talk a lot about tricks that you can do to do that, ways you can make your surroundings feel more conducive to that, ways you can create props, like, you know, perfect for Ravenloft. Everybody knows the Taroka deck from, like, Curse of Strahd and, like, early versions of 
uh, the adventure right in law. But then also we explore another direction uh, that you can go with that by presenting a spirit board uh, in the book and that features in the adventure where you're actually gathering around like a Ouija board like prop um, and just other things that you can do to sort of blur the barriers between we are sitting at a table with our character sheets in front of us to something that it does get you more in your head, in the collective story, and invested in what happens next, that real sort of ghost story territory. Yeah, it's true. That some of the scariest parts of scary movies or scary books is the anticipation of the thrill. Like, it may never even happen. You know, like mm -hmm. paranormal activity was like, what did that cost? Like, $5,000 to make that movie. And I was terrified the whole time because I just didn't want to see anything on that baby monitor. And, yep, uh, and yep. most of the time, nothing appeared. <laughs> and yet, I will still say that was a terrifying movie. Yeah. yeah. It is one of those things, right, where the horror is the is the not knowing. And sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, we, we talk about this, Wes and I talk about this a lot when we're talking about philosophy of running horror games. But there's a question of... Do you ever actually show the monster? And when you do, how do you do it in an impactful way that doesn't right. take away from the scariness of what the players have already experienced? And we do talk a bit about that philosophically in the book, I believe. Yeah. 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 The buildup like has the to pay off. Yeah, exactly. And one of the classic examples is to is playing in that fear of the unknown. If you just say you turn the corner and there's a troll, not scary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's got a lot of hit points, so maybe a little scary. Um, but <laughs> regeneration the corner. <laughs> exactly. Right. Uh, but turning the corner and being like, you immediately bump into this like gigantic warty horror that like, but it you don't even see it move. You just feel the splash of hot saliva on your face as it's coming for you. What do you do? uh what is it what's happening uh gross fit like uh uh very different reaction than like oh it's a troll <laughs> um, well that's really interesting because you know i've i've been you know playing D, D for a while and and there are those D D uh dungeon masters who will just say like oh you see you know three orcs or you see a uh lich you know, and they don't describe what those those things look like and feel like. And you just did a very good job of describing kind of the the sensual uh, reaction or, or or you know the experience of what a troll would look like without ever saying the word troll. And that's just that is so much more powerful uh, using specific examples. You know, it's good in writing. It's good in, in in lots of different parts of our world. But it's really great for dungeon mastering, especially to kind of create that thing. So it just it doesn't take something. Um, and put it to the abstract. You're talking about the, the the actual tactile things that people can feel and touch and see. Yeah, we actually spend a good um, amount of time in the book talking about how you do blur some of those lines, how you can really make any D&D &D monster really feel like this horrific threat. So how do you sort of blur the player expectations? How do you add or change abilities to like make things unexpected? Um, and then just how like the descriptions that we use for monsters, we don't have to be beholden to what's in the monster manual, what's, you know, what you see on the page. The more you blur that, the more you create stories that play up the anticipation of a monster as not just the troll, but the bog beast of Habung Shea. What, what is that? 
uh, it's a freaking troll. But now it's a troll that has a legend and so on and so forth. And it's, it's infamous. And I hate those bog beasts. <laughs> so jerks. listening to you talk about, I mean, we're talking specifically, you know, about the horror, but it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, this is all good advice for just dungeon mastering in general. It doesn't have to just be horror that you're talking about, like the tension and the descriptions and how, you know, it's, it's better to give a troll a backstory and make him a legend than just be a troll. Mm-hmm. This is very good, just general advice for running games. Just a, just a thought. Well, I mean, D&D has always been a horror game. Yeah. Like the concept of I'm I'm just a little guy and I've got a pointy sword or bad spells and there sure is a hole out there that has monsters and people don't come out of it. Go. Like that's a horror proposition. Um like there's there's a heroic element to that, certainly, but like so much of D, like dragons and mind flayers and ghosts and zombies, I mean, you can find horror stories, novels, movies about all of these, and these are these are the bread and butter of D d. So like there's always been that that horror element to pretty much any type of adventure. Um, and you can play that up or play that down as much as you want, but always there i love that van richten's can be uh, a guide to the specific domains and stories that we're that we'll get to talking about in a little bit but then also you're right just is a good advice for 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 telling a good you know yarn uh, no matter how you want it to happen uh but i wanted to ask you this amanda since i know you've run a, a fair amount of of horror themed games um the a lot of the stuff that we were talking about has been like literally talking to us about around the table um, and it's a lot easier to create that type of tension when you can, you know, more easily control the the ambiance and the atmosphere of the the people sitting around in the same physical space. But so many of us are playing digitally now. Uh, yes. What are some good thoughts or or ways to kind of increase that tension through uh, I don't know camera tricks or you know turning off all the lights? Uh, <laughs> is there is there a way to kind of ramp up that tension through using video conferencing and Zoom like we're all playing D and D now? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. Um, And I actually just got done running about an 11 month campaign that was essentially a horror game. It was at least a horror themed game. It was not necessarily that really tightly focused horror experience, but it was about pirates and there was an overall sort of devil worshiping cabal going on behind the background. And the whole game was all about the PCs slowly uncovering who's behind this cabal and what it is that they're trying to do. And then revealing that, Oh, the entire plan that they have is to make this whole region of uh, of islands subservient to this specific archdevil in hell. Okay, we've got to stop that from happening. That was the whole game. And I ran that game online, of course, because, you know, of, of quarantine and the pandemic. And so I was constantly thinking of ways that I things that I could do to really draw the players into the the game and the story and it was uh, it was a very story focused game uh, it was largely homebrew uh, there were some bones of a of a adventure path behind it but it was mostly stuff that I was coming up with so maps that I was building and NPCs that I was creating um, and a lot of the strategies that I used were really to think about the sort of mental effects of the game and how how the mindsets that I really wanted the players to be in and how to achieve that. So I really wanted the players to be 
focused on the story, but very much unsure of what exactly was going on throughout the different sessions. And as they uncovered one piece that it created this foreboding sense that there was something bigger happening. And then they would uncover another piece and another piece and another piece and would all sort of build out from there. Um, And so I really did that by, uh, you know, just keeping a strategy as uh, the DM of holding onto the information really tightly that they were figuring out, giving them enough information to get them sort of thinking about like, oh my gosh, this, this pirate captain that we've encountered before might actually be in league with, we know there are devil worshippers, devil worshippers, but we don't know who their names are. And I had them going into, there's a couple of times I had them actually like find a portal and then be like, oh my what is this? They walk into the portal, it's into hell, and now they're in the like extra planar meeting space of all of these devilish captains and figuring out like, oh, and then there's this symbol here and this symbol here and putting together, you know, which arch devils are behind it and based on what they could find out about them, what they might be trying to accomplish. Um, so, I, you know, I was really very careful with what I revealed when so that they couldn't jump to the very end of the story and then it was really kind of no longer scary because they knew what was going on and they could just stop it um i did that i also did things like i created a lot of handouts um i found a lot of cool art uh, online i built out maps myself so that there could be specific uh, things that they would find like i I created maps of hell to sort of give them the idea of where they were (laughs) Uh, and so there, there's a lot of different techniques, but, you know, using what Wes described, just those verbal sort of strategies of being very descriptive, uh, having a very visceral sense of everything that's going on, uh, really not holding back from like describing the, the whole area. There, there were a lot of times where it's like, oh, they're going through the woods and then they come upon a clearing and then what they see in the clearing is completely horrific. <laughs> and I don't know how much detail you want, but uh, <laughs> that those are sort of like, oh, mundane, mundane, mundane. Oh, and then big terrifying reveal. Like getting the pacing correct was very important on the online game to keep them focused um, and, and invested. And, and it went 11 months and it seemed like it, you know, everybody seemed to really enjoy it. And I felt like it was pretty successful. Nice. Actually, I, I think Amanda hit on something there that's that's particularly important, not just for um, playing in an online sense, but also for, for running horror, is like the players have to be in the mindset for it. Like if you're playing, if you're just at your computer browsing during a game or like playing another game, then you're not getting invested. So like just laying some ground rules where it's just like, hey, we're here to run a game where we know that, you know, this maybe is not the optimal way of doing this, but we're all here to do this. We want to focus on this and we're, we're here to invest in, in the story and whatnot. Sometimes it's as basic as that, as just like, put yourself in a mindset to get invested in the story. And that's, that's half the battle. And that's important from a, um, uh, just a, a general dungeon mastering D&D rule, right? It's like you kind of want to communicate with your players as the dungeon master about what type of themes and things are going to be uh, in the adventure and having that, you know, those ground rules to set. And uh, that's also really important for players to say, you know, hey, you know, I know this is going to be a horror-themed game or it's going to, you know, verge into some topics, but these are some things that uh, are, you know, hard passes for me and other things that uh, you're like, oh, this is all right. And we, we, they, we talk about those in the book too, right, Wes? Absolutely. We spend a good deal of time talking about how do you craft the type of horror that's right for 
right for you as the DM, right for the players, and so on and so forth. So there's a number of discussions about how you run a session zero for a horror game, what are some questions that you might want to put up to your group, how you can um, encourage players to answer those authentically, because the, the last thing that's going to ever happen is Great, tell me the, the the worst thing that ever happened to you so we don't put in the game. No, you're not doing that. Like, there's no world. No matter how long I've been playing with someone, I might have been playing with somebody since, you know, for 30 years, but I guarantee you they're never going to tell me the worst thing in their lives or their most traumatizing nightmare or whatever have you. Um but setting up the opportunities for like, how do we create some like, we want to see these elements in the game, we don't want to see these. And then in the course of play, if something does go off the rails or takes a turn that somebody might not even realize is a thing that they like don't want to see in a game, how do you adjust on the fly for that? The book talks about a spectrum of ways that you might prepare for those sort of things. So you can pick and choose what's right for you and your group. And it's it, it's important also because some people might not know some what's triggering to them until they hear it. Like even Absolutely. if you even if you did ask me what's the most horrifying thing that ever happened, and I was willing to tell you, I might not know you know until it comes up in the game. So there are are um, tools or tips in here as well to explain like how a, a player might feel comfortable expressing mid game on the fly. Yes, absolutely. And it, it's the sort of thing as well where it's like some parties will look at these and be like, all right, maybe I only use one or two of these, or maybe I don't really see the use of it, but I'll have it at my table. Couldn't hurt. Um, there's there's a lot of discussion about, of, about this because, you know, you never really know in a communal t- storytelling game exactly the way things are going to pan out. Everybody has a voice in this. Everybody can take things as... as different direction. So making sure that the group's prepared for if something does, you know, zig when it should have zagged, you can account for those sort of things. It's giving an opportunity to tap out, right? Just to be like, okay, mm-hmm. this is, you know, it's, it's an improv technique, you know, just be like, all right, we're, we're going too far. Let's switch tracks to go something else. Yep. And that's, you know, it's, it's good advice for everybody. So yeah. even yep. if you're not in running a horror game, game take, yeah. take heed to, to that section <laughs> uh, here in Van Richten's. I used to have a reoccurring nightmare when I was a kid that I had eyes in the back of my head. And I would wake up crying and I saw them crying too. I could see them like doing everything I was doing. Like it was a very lucid, horrifying, reoccurring dream. So So did they just like see the back of your hair? I I don't I feel like I could see them with my front eyes. Very in your mind's eye. In my mind's eye, could see all four of my eyes doing the same thing, crying at the same time, blinking at the same time. And my, I used to wake up with this dream, but more than just once, it was a reoccurring thing. So they were eyes in the back of your head that could also see through hair, which is really yes. specific. Yes, they're invisible. I can still seeing. picture like the shape of them and everything. They well, they were sort least... of cartoony, but not, but <laughs> but not like cute cartoony. Are you giving us fodder to use this yes, in a game with I'm you? Or are you, you saying that you we should like not be using to, this? If No, I think that one, I, I feel like that would be kind of cool to bring up. <laughs> I would be like, that's awesome. 
Um, All right. I'm adding this to my notes. <laughs> <laughs> Put that in an art description somewhere and um, we'll, we'll give that as a gift to Shelly one day. Yep, yep. Transparent hair. I mean, <laughs> transparent <laughs> hair. Transparent aluminum. At least no hair monsters would have any stealth against you. You would be like, that's not the wall. That's a monster. <laughs> I mean, I don't know why it was terrifying because it's, I mean, it, as a D&D character cool, like really. it would be really <laughs> cool to be able to see like i feel like that's actually like a spell that you could cast and, like i cast eyes in the back of my head and now you're just like boop, 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 boop. you can see everything i could see it being a little body horror thing because i always think of that it's it's played for comedy in army of darkness uh mm-hmm. when ash eats himself and then like an eye pops up on his shoulder that creeps me the hell out uh, and the growth of it all that, you know, that's, that's disturbing. I feel like that's in the yeah. same vein of what you're talking about. Yeah. Like body parts where they shouldn't be is just scary. It's just kind of gross and scary. And it happens more and more as you get older. <laughs> that's body hair. Wow. Greg. <laughs> uh, too real. <laughs> that's, too real that, that's the real horror. Too <laughs> much reality in our fantasy horror. Aging. Worst <laughs> so, I mean, horror monster ever. I, I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about this in a jokey way, but I mean, you're absolutely right. The elements of like the whole concept of your body, which is ostensibly you, but is also host to multitudes and constantly breaking down and things live on our body and inside us. And, you know, there's a global pandemic. So, I mean, that's the whole thing. Like all of the, the horror of the things that we don't consider about the thing that is supposedly us. That's a whole genre that a lot of folks hear that and get into that and are like, okay, too real. I came here for like, stabbing some mind flares and whatnot like let's right. not do all that but that's definitely something that we end up talking about in the book is like body horror as a genre is a thing if you want to play with that how do you do that but also if you don't how do you make sure that that's a play that's that's a part of town we're not going to how do you just veer around <laughs> Wes, I really like in the book, um, in the genre section specifically, how there are tables for generating uh, types of elements for each subgenre that we talk about. So villains and settings and plots that fall into these categories, because I just really like that uh, it's thinking critically about these genres and what makes these genres and what defines them. And it's giving them specific options. I just think there will be some super cool games that folks are able to make given that information. Absolutely. It's funny how categories like that, which ultimately are semantics, you know, it's just like an organizational tool, but it does help you almost get more inspired because you're like, oh, well, I want to make a cosmic horror story. So I'm going to do that. Now I know I have the language and the vocabulary to talk about this thing in a way. And so I love that you guys are doing that with horror, especially as pertains to tabletop role playing games, because it just it kind of sets the language for, for, for discussions like this. Um, but you mentioned pot, body horror, and I believe Lamordia, as well as a couple other of the Domains of Dread, uh, uh, use body horror uh, as, mm-hmm. as kind of its defining characteristic, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, I'd say a defining characteristic. There are a couple <coughs> of genres that are touched on in the Lamordia section. I see Wes smiling over there. Um, There's the sort of frozen tundra wastelands of Lamordia in which we were talking about this section and it's like, there should be something creepy to be discovered within the the ice and the glaciers, but don't make it the thing. (laughs) We just did that one. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, so there's a bit of, there's almost like a steampunky element as well. There's sort of a, a darker, gritty steampunk element to some of the cities of uh, Lamordia in which body horror comes into play because there are definitely discussions of like, oh, and there are probably body snatchers uh, who are operating within these the, the, this urban area, these different graveyards, and they're transporting these uh, at the behest of the Dark Lord, Victor Mordenheim, who's ensconced in her own castle and doing various experimentations uh, to try to discover a couple of key things to the plot there. So, you know, you've got steampunk stuff going on. You've got uh, a little bit of cosmic horror elements going on, in addition to the strong body horror element so you know there's a lot of just a it's a beautiful melting pot of all kinds of subgenres, and you can kind of tell whatever whatever story fascinates you the most you know if you don't want to tell a body horror story and the cosmic elements really appeal to you in Lamornia, you can absolutely do that and you don't even have to touch any of the body snatching or any of the the flesh warping or any of um, those things going on flesh lovely delightful wonderful things <laughs> i think when you said melting pot Wes kind of mm-hmm. broke a little bit because he was like because he's oh. probably thinking about like oh melting flesh yeah, yeah, i know, I, know I, right? I, I went there too <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> literally a melting pot that's <laughs> america uh, <laughs> but horrible <laughs> it's so great uh also i love that steampunk is a horror genre now we're just like it's horror basically it's there's 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 we'll goggles which are terrible <laughs> anything can be made Horror. That is true. Yeah, it's. I think it's the dystopian sort of uh, outlook that we're we're weaving into the different cities in in Lamordia. A couple of different cities, um, Ludendorff, I think, is definitely one of them. I see West nodding. Okay, good. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's definitely that sort of uh, dystopian. Um, you know, like difficult, gritty, hard to survive in type of atmosphere where it's like, yep, they sure do have technology and they sure do, you know, have industry and they create things and uh, look at the dark underbelly of what is required to sort of sustain this type of of society. So it's an interesting thing to explore. For sure. And, I, and all of our discussions about like how to infuse horror uh, and, you know, potentially create uh, people's own domains or, 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 or games that would involve these horror elements, then there's this whole section of the book that talks about these specific domains of dread. Um, and those just feel like just inspiration and jumping off points being like, all right, so we gave you all these tools about how to make horror. Here are a few that are you know ready to use out of the box or just get you inspired. Is that, is that kind of like how you thought about it, Wes, as you were putting this book together? Absolutely. One of the big elements with the book is we want to really lean into the idea of you can create your own nightmares. You can tell your own stories. The domains of dread are so interesting because each one of them is its own horror sandbox. And through the course of D&D's history, there's been dozens and dozens and dozens of domains. And many of them are well known. Like, You've got Barovia with Strahd there. You've got Lamordia with Victor Mordenheim. You can continue on down the list. But honestly, the type of horror that's going to be perfect for you is going to be the horror stories that you end up creating. And we give you a lot of how do you create a Dark Lord? How do you create a domain around the torment of that Dark Lord? How do you play with genre? Great, fantastic. Now let's give you... Dozens and dozens and dozens of examples of like, all right, you want to take some gothic horror, you want to take some um, 
psychological horror, bam, you've got a domain like Borka. Or you want to take body horror, you want to take gothic horror, or you want to throw in some cosmic horror elements, you've got a domain like Lamordia, so on and so forth. So not only do we provide the domains of dread as these are places which are ready-made little micro settings to tell the like perfect settings for these types of stories, there are also examples in a way where it's like, if you take a dash of this and a dash of this, you might get something like this. I love that. The idea of a dash here, a dash there, everywhere, yeah. a dash, dash. A pinch and of I devil mean, uh, worshiping and then you're good to go. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's usually my shtick. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I have to find myself thinking like, I'm not going to do that again, right? <laughs> right, right, because you know I've got a lot of the same players who play in most of my games, and they'll just be like, "Really, again, Amanda? Again. Seriously?" Oh. The devils, <laughs> you've been in your games. Yeah, okay. yeah, you know. The play with made me do it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> play what you love. Don't worry about them; yep. they can handle it. It'll be a wonderful <laughs> original story, no matter what. Um, so yeah, the, you know, the, those domains are great examples of, of ways to kind of combine all these things, but there is, as you're saying, this, this idea of it being several, uh, micro settings with the mist connecting all of them. Right. So, uh, folks who know Curse of Strahd and played through that will have, uh, uh traveled through the mists uh, at least once, uh, mm-hmm. in their thing. So they might be familiar with that, but like give a, uh, kind of overview of like, what is our conception or in cosmology of what, uh, Ravenloft is uh, and how people can get in and out of it or, or, or uh, go from domain to so, domain. So one of the things that's fascinating about Ravenloft and the Domains of Dread as a concept is it's not a planet. It's not just a place on the material plane where like, all right, you've got this country and you can walk over to another country or whatever have you. The Domains of Dread are sequestered in one of the farthest flung, most difficult to find secretive reaches of the Shadowfell. Um, It cuts them off from just largely people stumbling into them or necessarily even the gods having a normal amount of influence there. But the Domains of Dread, while there are these each of these demi-planes that are just drifting through um, this shadowy, mist-clouded region of, of the, the plane of shadow, they're manipulated, controlled by a mysterious cadre of forces called the Dark Powers. Uh, and the Dark Powers are best known and embodied by the mists that surround the Domains of Dread, which can creep into the domains and they can move people around or they can like cause mi- monsters to come out of them or they, they can manipulate reality in whatever way the Dark Powers choose which also means whichever way the dark uh, the DM chooses, which also means whatever spookiest. Um, <laughs> but they're not they're they're not trapped within. They're not relegated to the domains of dread. So no matter where anybody is throughout the D and D multiverse, the mists of Ravenloft can slip their tendrils out into the forgotten realms. Um, any Eberron, any campaign setting that you might be playing at your homebrew settings, scoop up uh, players, pass them on to Ravenloft for maybe just a single one-shot campaign or a one-shot adventure, or potentially that's where your campaign is now. But when it's done, they could also potentially release them and slip them back. 
in pretty much the same way where if you wanted to take Curse of Strahd and like run elements of it like in the middle of your other campaign and then put somebody back, you could do that. You can do that with pretty much any Ravenloft uh, adventure and the, it, the, the whole cosmology of the domain is well suited to it. So what, what happens when you're in the mist? Like, does it, like, as a player, so I'm just like, oh, I'm tooling around water yeah. deep or something. Like, do I see it? Do I feel like, am I just gone? Do I know I'm in the mist? Like, what, what, ha- how long does it take? I need to know what happens in the mist. Wes <laughs> so, has experience with this, don't you, Wes? <laughs> maybe a little. Uh, so there, there's a whole section at the outset of the Domains of Dread section about like, how do you use the mists? What happens when you enter them? Um, and it can be, it can be something as basic as like, just you're, wa- you're traveling down the road and the mists start rising up from the ground around you and things get foggy and you continue traveling through the fog. And when finally you break out of the fog, you're someplace that you weren't expecting. And that could be, it could be as simple as that, where it's just like, great weather we're having, oh, we're in Barovia. Um, (laughs) Alternatively, if you want to have it be more mysterious, if you want to set it up as more of a supernatural thing that has the potential to creep players out, you know, there could be others traveling in the mist. You could run into people that are like running, screaming from the other directions. There are creatures like mist horrors, which are just monsters that exist solely within the mists. Um, and then the complete opposite of everything that I said about having the mists work as sort of this, this transitory element is it's possible that particularly if you're in a domain, you wander in the mists trying to get away because, oh, all this sucks. Let's try something else. Mm-hmm. Wandering into the mist, travel for an hour, and then pop right back exactly where you entered. That's the, That's the, the idea no of seeing other people in there running and screaming. <laughs> the the mists are, the mists and like really the setup for the Domains of Dread in general are your classic haunted house story. It's just like every domain is the haunted house. Like, but we can't get out. Well, why not? Because. <laughs> and, and the answer for the Domains of Dread is, is typically because of the mists. Yeah. There is no getting away from the monster because you're locked inside the house, yeah. which is the size of however big the domain is. One of the interesting things about the mist as well is that the Dark Lord of each realm can basically open and close the doors at will. And we've actually got, um, I think in all of the domains, there are options for why the Dark Lord would want to bring in a player group for a reason. There's basically little quest seeds that are like, oh, they need players to uh, to go track down the Unbreakable Heart in the case of Lamordia, which is a, a thing that she's created that has gone off with a, the golem of what once was someone named Elise. <laughs> uh, they need, you know, there's all of these different things that the Dark Lords need to to sort of accomplish and can't do so on their own. So there's a reason for them to be pulled into the mist and the mists are locked until the Dark Lord says so. And, I mean, just jumping off of that uh, is... The, the the transition can happen off screen too, right? So people go to sleep, 
they wake up and they're in a completely new place. And then that, like what we talked about earlier about like the unknown, like they have to figure out why they're there or how they can get out or what the Dark Lord asked them there for or all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, yeah. what's creepier than that? Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, go ahead. I was going to say there are so many options in the different um, domains and it can even be the old trope of a mistaken identity. Mm. Dark Lord thinks that you're someone connected to something that's happened in the domain or something that they, some plot that they've got going on or they think you're an individual person. For example, there are reincarnations of Tatiana in uh, Barovia that Strahd is constantly after and seeking. Um, and, you know, it, that's a perfect seed for a DM to use. Uh, Strahd thinks one of the PCs is an incarnation of Tatiana maybe one of the PCs actually is an incarnation of Tatiana. Um, and so that is, that's a great way to start off that campaign and let that PC discover that kind of on their own, I think is a really fun storytelling seed to use. That's awesome. Uh, we already kind of covered a couple of these questions from uh, the amazing audience who threw in some stuff uh, to ask you guys. Um, I think the one from Koto2992 uh, was talking about this and how there's, the, but the the one question, one part of his, uh, their question that we didn't talk about was, uh, you know, is there a finite number of souls uh, that can be in any domain at a time? And is that covered or is that, is it, is it more open-ended than that? Uh, it's, it's vague. It's something that we play with a little bit in Curse of Strahd, where the idea is that like, if you die in Ravenloft, what happens to your soul? Do they, does it go to the outer planes as normal? Does your God collect it? Do you get reincarnated? So on and so forth. Um, do, but who has the soul? Who doesn't? All of these elements. This is something that's in the background where if you want to engage with a story where it's like, I died and now I'm back and I realize there's nothing like my god did not come there is not an after like if that's the story that you want to play with we t- we totally set set those sort of elements up if that's something where you don't want to play the more existential game you don't have to at no point in the course of the book do we do we suggest all right and make sure that you're you're tracking which characters have a soul and who doesn't <laughs> um so we don't want to turn it into a big trivia element but like i said it's something that shows up in curse of strad and we explore that the, the dark powers don't necessarily just give folks up when uh when they die so if you want to play with that go for it nice well Following up with that, we have another question from a, from a Dark Lord. Uh, it is Dark Lord Azalin <laughs> says, uh, and we've talked about you know the specifics of Lamordia uh, uh, quite a bunch, but how in-depth are the domain and Dark Lord descriptions, and uh, will we see in-depth descriptions of like history and places within uh, these domain descriptions? So Amanda, I guess I'll throw it to you because I know there's a little bit more about uh, Barovia uh, sure. in the book. Yeah, absolutely. So the domains are pretty in-depth. Um, they've each got several pages that include information about the backstory of the domain, information about the Dark Lord of the domain, backstory about the Dark Lord of the domain. And then there's a lengthy gazetteer section before we get into things like suggesting plot ideas and hooks and things like that. And the gazetteer section uh, for Barovia is... You know, it's it's pretty widespread. It's covering all of these places that are not just Castle Ravenloft, that are not just the village of Barovia, um, that are providing seeds for, you know, quite frankly, if you want to keep playing after Curse of Strahd, you can because there are seeds that are of a high enough level 
that would really facilitate that sort of play. So um, we've got the Amber Temple uh, in there, which is the place where Strahd made his bargain with the dark powers uh, to become the first vampire of the multiverse. And it's implied that the things that are within this temple are very high level, very difficult to, to deal with and that sort of thing. And, and so we really sort of take a deep dive into these places and how they became the way that they are and how Strahd's influence um, really just lords over the whole place. That's the thing about Barovia, right, is the fact that Strahd can show up anywhere and he has the entire domain, you know, at its knees, basically, dealing with all that stuff. And it's a very sort of creepy situation going on. Um, but, you know, we do we do very much go in depth and um, it was something like that I struggled a little bit with um, talking about how does Strahd like affect this entire place? What are things that players might run into? Why does Strahd show up wherever he wants? What might be a thing to get his attention? The fact that, you know, anytime that he uh, there's a PC um, in the realm, he knows about it and he can visit you whenever he wants. And just kind of thinking about how that might work um, was something that was really fun for me, but it was also kind of a struggle because it's like, oh, there's this personality and, you know, like he's uh, he's really monstrous and he's a terrible person. And how am I going to work that in, in here? And, um, you know, it was fun, but I actually, I ended up consulting with another writer um, on the project um, who uh, is Alexander Sangroom. And he and I like worked back and forth with like how sort of would this stuff work out and like what are the manifestations of Strahd and I think I hope folks will like it it's it's a pretty uh fun sort of like terrifying experience both in writing it and in, in reading it hopefully yeah <laughs> um so we have, yeah Wes is that true for other domains dark lords is is it do they have that same level of control or is it different for each one so it's a little different for each one of them, but in general, each one of the domains ends up giving anywhere from four to eight pages in general, giving you a, here's what the gist is of the domain, here's some of the locations, but then there's a lot of focus on the Dark Lords themselves, because the Dark Lords are the central prisoners of the domains, but also really the inspiration for each of the domains. So really their history, their evil touches on everything. Um, the Dark Lord write-ups give you not just their backgrounds um, and how their they, their powers manifest currently, but also how they're tormented. Something that we really wanted to play up with every one of the Dark Lords is they're not living their best lives. They're not <laughs> Strahd hates being Strahd. He hates his situation, and that's and he's being tormented by the dark powers. Mm-hmm. rinse repeat for each one of the the dark lords and how that feeds into the atrocities that they continue to commit how the pcs might engage with those and what their ultimate undoing might be and then this is followed up by a section one types of adventures you can have there but some manner of tent post adventure experience so for barovia it's how do you engage with the story of Tatiana? How do you create adventures around where this character might be reincarnated, what Strahd's reactions might be, how that might lead to future adventures? But then for a domain like Falkovnia, this is a domain that is under constant threat of zombie apocalypse. How do you run a siege during, uh, during a constant zombie apocalypse? that section explores that and then so on and so forth for just domain after domain. 
I love uh, maps, of course. I've made that pretty well known on this podcast. And some of the fun things about flipping through uh, this book, Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, is that each, not each, but many of the domains have a uh, a map of what that domain looks like in the geography. And I love that they all are a little bit different. They're all, yeah, I think, was there a different artist for each one of the, the those maps? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think we uh, employed three different artists at the end. It uh, really brings the character of the domain to life as well as having those, you know, super dungeon mastery bits of information you need about where things are when. Um, and they are fantastic. So, I mean, that alone is a great portal, at least for me and my, the way I consume D&D products is like, oh man, the maps for each one of these. And now I want to be like, all right, what's happening? What's happening here? How can I connect these dots and come up with my own horrific stories off of them? Nice. I mean, it, it's really something we try to lean into the fact that Ravenloft isn't like other worlds. It's not, ooh, we, it, we should probably have our desert be next to another hot climate that is next to this other very natural seeming place. Like Ravenloft is a place where like, all right, you've got tundra-like lands, you've got desert lands, you've got rainforest lands, but then you've got ones that are more supernatural, like here is an entire haunted city in the domain of Icath, or here you've got um, Hasland, for example, is undergoing pretty much every imaginable magical apocalypse possible, or <laughs> how does a zombie apocalypse affect the environment and the map, and so on and so forth. So we get to play with some pretty wild ideas in these little sandboxes. It sounds very much like Washington You're muted, Shelly Bear. No. Shelly Bear? Why did I just call you that? I don't Hi. know. Hi. My friend calls me Shelly Bear, actually. <laughs> I was in the mist for a while. I don't know if you guys noticed that. <laughs> I did leave and go to the mist. Fortunately, I was released quickly. Shelly, what um, was there? There's a bunch of people with eyes in the back of <laughs> And moths. I'm also terrified of moths. So I do feel like. That's, that's fair. That, that's what would be in the mist. If, oh, you really are writing this down, aren't you, Wes? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was saying, it's, the way you're describing Ravenloft sounds very much much like Washington State, but with all the, of the different, like the rainforest and the desert and all the, the zombie oh. apocalypse. But anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> that's the Seattle part, probably. Oh, no. She's gone. She went back into the mists, everybody. She's back in the mists. I'm right here. You can't. Can you not Uh, even hear me? Well, I will say that we, I covered a lot of the questions that people were throwing in uh, and through our course of our discussion. Uh, But one that I want to just kind of uh, put a button on this is is, is all the inspiration we have about talking about all these domains and creating your own, right? We talked about mixing and matching genres, but, you know, uh, what, what are what are some of the tips that you might give to people? This question is from D. A. Alton um, for making your own domain of dread. And here I'll throw this to you, Amanda, since you have some experience with the eleven uh, uh, month campaign you were just talking about. How it <laughs> kind of feels like it might have been a domain of dread uh, in some ways. There, uh, yeah. yeah. So what? Yeah. What? What? What are some of the fun tips to you know not go overboard on on having to prep too much stuff, but combine some of the great things that we've been talking about in this podcast into your own homebrew domain of dread. Yeah. Um, so are you looking for tools that are in the book or are you just looking for some general advice? About both. About both. Okay. Well, Wes will be the best person to talk about the tools <laughs> that are in the book. Um, but, you know, general advice is 
It's very similar to the normal um, advice that I would give to people looking to DM anything that, you know, might not even be horror is to have a have a solid sense of the plot, have a sense of what the flashpoints are that you want the PCs to be able to uncover. Um, and then, you know, sort of do the world building out from there. Uh, if oh. you are trying to build the world from the outside in, you're going to end up coming up with all these details that don't aren't necessarily important and aren't relevant. And you'll, you'll waste a lot of time, but you also might accidentally write yourself into a corner, basically, um, of saying, oh, um, you know, elves don't exist in this world because something happened a long time ago where they just never did. And then it turns out like, oh, but it would be very cool if there was an elven type of character within this story. Um, who's got something, you know, going on that the PCs need to to come up with. That's not the greatest example in the world, but but it is an example of a way that you can run into the problems um, by doing that sort of outside-in world building. Um, so I would really, like, have a very plot-focused, uh, plot-driven kind of domain, figure out, you know, how do you want the arc of the campaign to go, and then uh, come up with the, the sort of basic rules that the players would interact with. And there are, are maybe even things going on behind the scenes that they don't ever find out about, but that you as the DM know is, is true about the situation, but the things that they will encounter, that they will come face to face with, having a good sense of what those are and what they look like and how they can be described and sort of the, that uh, visceral, uh, the type of language that's used when you're encountering them, that's, that's the important part. That's creating an illusion of this whole world when really it's just kind of the cameras focused on that story is my best advice. I like that. Um, and are those the tools that are in the book, uh, Wes, that, that uh, Amanda was just describing? Well, we definitely talk a lot about that. I mean, how do you build what you need to build? I mean, it's one of the lovely things that is about like making your own domain of dread is you don't have to worry about what's on the other side of the world or like have necessarily a detailed, uh, detailed history. Something that we talk about is the concept of nightmare logic. Like a nightmare doesn't mm. make sense. It's still terrifying. And part of what makes it scary is this isn't reasonable. This doesn't make sense. This bucks my expectations. Yet it is still true. And I need to react to it immediately or menace. Um, or so, menace. <laughs> so like the conversations about like, how do you play into the surreal? How do you play into physics and just what's normally true about the world and players' expectations aren't necessarily reliable? Um, playing up all of that, definitely talk about that as one technique for creating terror. Makes total sense. I, uh, I love uh, what you said, Amanda, too, about like not having to write too much because uh, then you'll be like, oh, it, it, it doesn't let you improv off of that, right? And so, mm -hmm. you know, I, even just in talking about this, it sounds like you need a dark lord, you need some <laughs> genres uh, uh, that you want to kind of focus on and then how that dark lord is being tormented and the torment that mm -hmm. they're going to pass down to the PCs. And with those three pieces of information, you can have your own domain of dread. Absolutely. I mean, chapter two of the book does a lot of Create the Dark Lord. How does that turn into a domain? And then here's genres. And if you want, get out your dice. Just be like, all right, I would like a body horror Dark Lord da -da 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 -da, roll on the table. Mm. I would like it to be in a cosmic horror setting. Da -da -da -da, there you go. And I would like it to have a psychological horror uh, plot to it. 
And then if those that you can string those together and or if you don't like it, just start rolling again. You're also um, oh, hang on. <laughs> hang on. Hi, back. I'm back from the mess. You're back. Um <laughs> so but we have we talked about the bestiary and these horrible monsters? Because you I mean I could populate my own domain with some horrible monsters that you've created as well, couldn't I? There might be a monster or two, yeah. <laughs> Do you want to talk about any of the ones that you uh, talk to our team about? Do you want to talk about any of them? Because I seem to remember you had a few uh, strong reactions. Um, the one in particular, the carrionette. <laughs> go, go on. Okay, this is what I remember. A creepy puppety thing that jabs you in the neck. <laughs> with a silver needle and steals your consciousness. And so it just runs around being you while you're just like there as a dead puppet. Am I, Ooh, am I close? <laughs> nailed it. I mean, that, that's it. There um, you go. That's horrifying. It, you could have just said, oh, it's a marionette. And that would have just been un- creepy enough. But the fact that you had to just take it a few steps further is really horrible. <laughs> yeah, I think folks that um, are Ravenloft fans from way back are going to recognize a number of the monsters in the bestiary here. We, we play with like the the full gamut of like, all right, these are, are monsters you might know from like classic film or folklore or whatever have you. But uh, Carionettes uh, featured in a fantastic adventure called The Create It back uh, in second edition, where it's just like. Yeah, now you're in a now you've got a doll body. Cool. Enjoy. Um, the pun alone is horrifying. Uh, I like I mean I hate puns, but that's so good. Uh, but we've also got, let's see, there's Gramishka, which are these creepy little um magic allergic uh uh, sort of gremlins things um, where, spoiler, uh, if you cast magic on them, like they have the potential to explode into a whole swarm. Oh. Um, and I mean, I guess maybe don't feed them after midnight or something like that. But <laughs> um, <laughs> that's implied. Uh, the, what else do we have bag, in there? Bagman? Yeah, so bad. The, the art for that monster is absolutely Bagman is nightmare like every party's nightmare <laughs> i love the concept of the Bagman. <laughs> yeah as a dungeon master so, i could see why but as a player nope don't want to encounter that one <laughs> yeah and like that that's not even a new monster that's that's part of the discussion of how do you take any monster that exists and make it something that's infamous. And uh, yeah, we play with like, how do you use folklore, fake lore, and that sort of infamous storytelling to take something that might just be something out of the monster manual and make it, make it notorious. Uh, yes. And you've done so. <laughs> All of the above. That's actually one of my favorite parts of the book. I like to just flip through the pages and... And freak look. yourself out. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> Yeah, before a little before bed reading, um, <laughs> a little light reading. Yeah, obviously. a little just to feed the nightmares. Um, we were you talked a little bit about writing, and I told you I had a special treat for this podcast. 
Um, I think, I don't know if I told you this, Wes, but we've talked a lot about this book leading up to it. And I, it's really exciting to me. I like so much, like I, I want the dark gifts. I, I'm like in love with hexbloods. I just, I love witches. I love so much of, of what's happening here. And I thought, I can't believe I like this because I didn't know, I, I didn't know I liked horror, but I think I always have. And, and then I've um, recently uncovered some very old, an, an old Rubbermaid bin in my garage and it's filled with like old journals and old short stories and things that I wrote. And I found one that I wrote when I was in fourth grade. And I thought it would be appropriate just to read mm. a snippet of it for you and Amanda because story time. It is called The Ghost's House. Um, and I'm just going to read it. Strong start. Right? Okay. <laughs> um, here we go. A long time ago, some people say that a mean old man lived in an old, old shack. He died on the night of Halloween. Some people say that he killed kids when they came around. They would usually go fishing or hunting. The old man would grab a gun and shoot them. Thank you. The end. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, not the end. It goes on a little, but um, is that good? Like, did I raise the tension in that enough? Should I have, like, added a little more description? What Do you need me to work on um, Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft Part 2? Because I will be. Uh, Yeah, Uh, absolutely. Like, that perfect and honestly like for being all you need to set up your own like domain of dread oh you've got everything you need i do feel like i did and like i it does it gets real dark um what like allegedly one of the the little boys does does die and uh, the the ghost tells his friend you're too late i've killed him go home or you're next so (laughs) what was happening in when i was nine i don't know (laughs) You should ask, ask the face that's on the back of your head still. Yes, uh, it was probably yeah. around the time when I was having the nightmares of the eyes <laughs> in the back of my head. So I think, I think I've always loved horror. I think it was dormant for a while. Um, I think Betrayal at House on the Hill kicked it up again. And now this has really just turned me into a, a living nightmare. I can't wait. I can't wait. Somebody please run this for me. <laughs> Wes, well, and this is Amanda? also something where it's like, I, I tend to say this a lot, like, I like horror stories and like horror film, but I'm an absolute coward. Oh, I mean, there are 100%. certain genres where it's just like, mm, nope, we're not doing that, or we're fast forwarding through that, or whatever have you. So you know, it's easy to be like, oh, I don't like horror. It's like, yeah, but have you have you tried being the one spooking people? Like, yeah. have you? You might not be a good horror player, but you might be a great horror DM. The one in control mm. that would be that's yeah. different. Yeah. The one yeah. who knows all about the scary monster the PCs can't see. Yeah. That's a really, I think that's an older brother or older sister uh, kind of mentality too, is like the one who likes to be the, 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 the one who scares the younger siblings uh, may, mm-hmm. may grow up to end up being a really good horror DM. I was the younger Ooh. sibling. <laughs> that, what? What a good breakthrough to take to my therapist, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I, know, I, I know. I just figured out why I like horror. <laughs> yeah, it's like, ooh, ooh. Dragon ooh, therapy. That got real, real. <laughs> Think about it, you guys. Maybe that's why I don't like it. I'm the youngest, so maybe I'm, I'm uh, you know, well, I'll be the player. I'll, I'll, I'll take it along. Um, 
But great. Well, I'm hoping that everyone is able to get Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft when it comes out on May 18th, and they can learn a little bit about themselves uh, when yeah. they read it, too. What's scarier than that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? I, I your own psyche. You take those eyes on the back of your head, and you take a <laughs> yeah. good long look at yourself. <laughs> Shelly, you are going to prompt probably more than one person to start having dreams about eyes in the back of their head. So I hope that you are prepared to reckon with that. I, I am fully prepared. I, if you, you take that fodder and you do with, with it what you will. <laughs> all of you. Enjoy. Tell me all about your adventures. Wes? We want fan art. Everybody make fan art of Shelly with eyes in the back of her head. I don't know if oh I'm ready God, for that. That's amazing. <laughs> yes. But I would be happy to have you... Uh, put that in a in a game for me. Bring it up. Let's do it. Nice. I'll tell you all my yeah, terrible no. fears and phobias. Moths with ba- eyes in the back of their heads. For doing oh, it. that would be <laughs> awful. Well, thanks. Take all your deep-seated fears and cast fireball. <laughs> yes. And then have them multiply into a, a bigger hive. Could happen. Thank you to the both of you for taking time out of your schedules to talk through uh, this amazing book. We're we're jazzed about it. I think there's a lot of fun, interesting, uh, horrific stories that people can tell uh, once they they get their hands on it. Like I said, on May 18th, um, if there are folks who have questions online uh, and they or they just want to ask about some scary things, uh, what would be the best place for them to get uh, uh, the attention of both of you? So, Amanda, we'll go with you and then go to Wes. I am over on Twitter at Amanda Hammon, H-A-M-O-N. So you can find me and may God have mercy on your soul for the dumb things that I post. (laughs) (laughs) Forever and ever, amen. Uh, Wes, what about you? Uh, And you can also find my haunted house with a a Twitter account over at F. Wes Schneider. Awesome. Well, very excited for uh, this book, as I've said. Uh, Amanda, glad you were able to join the team and hit the ground running and, and getting all this out there. And uh, it has been a pleasure as always. So thanks, you two. Yeah, so much. thanks for having us. Thank, Thank you. you all so much. And thanks to Shelly's internet for keeping her in the mists for this entire interview. That was not my internet. That was the mists. <laughs> <laughs> I love speaking to... Wes and Amanda. I feel like they've got a great rapport. They're definitely the goth kids to our, uh, our, our the theater performers. That was the best. That was a great union to bring the goth kids and the theater kids together. Yeah. To talk about scary things. Yeah. The farmer and the cowman can be friends. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is evidenced. a reference we will get, but not them. They were like, what? Huh? What? what? Um, does, this, does this involve Robert Smith? I was just going to make a cure joke. <laughs> <laughs> I can't hear you over the sounds of Robert Smith. <laughs> oh, okay. But I am uh, hoping that everyone listening got so excited about uh, Van Richten's uh, as we did. You know, we started coming up with new domains, uh, all types of horrific nightmare creatures uh, that Shelley really? is now inspiring. And Wes is See how notes. easy? See how easy it is to... to- Create your own domain and your own dark lord. Yeah, just put me and Shelly in there as 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 your own, you know, dark lord and lady. <laughs> dark lord and lady. We'll just be there podcasting, and you guys are like, "Shut up! No, this God, is horrific." They're still stop talking, doing impressions. You're not funny. <laughs> we know you're theater kids. Come on, losers, talk about D and D. And we're just there, being like, "Mer, mer, <laughs> no." Guess what my kid did today? Oh, <laughs> <I took a poop. laughs> 
Basically, I'm just reading reviews right now. Yeah, these are these are the, uh, <laughs> these are actual the reviews bad reviews from, from iTunes. Our listeners. Yeah. You guys, when you got to offset D&D? those reviews with good reviews. So go right. ahead and, oh, yeah, and tell them right. how much you like our uh, our witty banter. Our guests. Tell them how much you like our guests. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not us, just the guests. Good stuff. Yes. Well, Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, as I said, May 18th. Mark your calendars. There's two covers. They're both amazing. I want everyone to um, tell me all about their horrific stories they're telling uh, using D&D. And uh, if you want to find out anything more about what's happening in the world of D&D, you can go to DungeonsAndDragons.com. Follow us on the socials, wizards underscore DND on Twitter. Like our Facebook page. Subscribe to our YouTube. <laughs> and, uh, of course, download Dragon Plus to your phone because you can get lots of bi-monthly content dropping that way, including previews of upcoming stuff like Ravenloft. Um, but perhaps the best and most efficient way to get information is to sign up for our newsletter. Yes. There's a, there's be the first to know. There's be a the link first. in our show notes. It'll be fantabulous. You should totally do it. And I think that's all we want to talk about today, Shelly, right? Uh, Do you want yeah. people to talk to you on Twitter? I would love that. You can find me at Shelly Moo on Twitter or Instagram. And I am at Greg Tito or uh, on Twitter uh, or uh, on Instagram, Greg underscore Tito. Gotten a lot of followers. And by that, I mean two over the last week uh, on Instagram. So I'm very excited. Um, yeah, the Instagram is just lighting up. I told you about my other Instagram, uh, handle. Two moms. Two old moms, <laughs> not broke moms. That is just inherent if you're a mom. Two old moms and uh, like, like I got like, there's like 20 people now that follow me. Nice. And I know you're all D&D people. I know you are. And I love you for it. So thank you. Awesome. Well, we've got about that same number of people following along at Reengage, uh, my Star Trek podcast. Uh, so, very cool. Go there at Reengage TNG on Twitter. Uh, but you can just look for Reengage on podcast if you're interested in. We're almost done with the first season of Star Trek: The Next Generation. We're going to be finishing that up this week, and so you can watch along and listen to our silly discussions of Gen X people and my daughters sometimes coming on to talk about the episode. I love that your daughters watch it too. Yeah, it's been fun hearing their the like, coolest little kids. voices. Coolest. Sweet. All right. Well, we're in Waterdeep, Drunky and Daryl, on our way to the safe house uh, from the Harpers after uh, Daryl let loose that he had been in, 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 uh, indoctrinated no uh invited to be a member of that harper's and you were as well there was an altercation in the market where a street urchin stole your money purse went down an alley those three shortish uh urchins uh were all of a sudden uh transformed into more uh five or six feet tall humanoids with cloaks and one of them uh, decided to accost you while the other two escaped. That one had the appearance of looking exactly like your brother, Daryl Two Shoes. And Daryl was right behind you. And a uh, amulet fell out of the shirt. And you, Drunky grabbed a hold of it, 
was not able to yank it off its chain, but Daryl sliced the leather cord uh, and everybody kind of fell down from there and you're left with this amulet in your hand. And, and I'm running now. And you're running, running full speed. To the, I thought we're going back to our safe house. Yes, in the north ward. Yep. All right, so you're, you're, you're sprinting uh, as fast as you can uh, away and Daryl uh, is loping along behind you. Come on, I'm just, let's go, Daryl. Pick up the pace, we gotta go. Do nice. I recognize anything about this amulet? Uh, you you recognize that it looks to be a similar metal and design to the amulet that you first saw uh, when we started this adventure, uh, back when uh, the cloaked figure uh, was whispering something about your brother Daryl and that they had him. It's very similar in design. You only got like a very brief glimpse of that. Uh, and you're now sprinting and running while holding it. So you're not really examining it. But at first glance during the fight, it looked very similar to uh, that one. Okay. All, All right. right. So you're, you're jo- running through the streets. Uh, there's an apple cart uh, kind of moving in the middle of the street as, as you're trying uh, to run down it. But it's blocking your path. Uh, what do you do? Um, just because it's drunky and she's a little impetuous, she just runs right through the apple cart. She runs right through there. All right, roll yeah, me a strength like, check. Uh, 19. 19, all right. So Junkie puts her shoulder down and, uh, you know, mm. she's still got the, the, the fur and everything going on, but you're able to kind of get your uh, lower body kind of beneath and your momentum and you kind of spring up into this apple cart at the right timing uh, because you're not terribly strong, right? You're like 11 or 12 strength, right? Uh, But with that huge high roll, uh, you knock over the entire apple cart and, you know, small spheres of red go in every direction and uh, the cursing of the... Uh, cart owner kind of rings in your ears. Uh, it's in a language you don't understand, but it's like, um, sorry. All right. And did you keep running or what? No, I keep running. You just yell behind you, sorry. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you hear uh, behind you as you say, sorry, and you keep sprinting. Uh, you hear Daryl's voice say like, I'm terribly sorry. Here, please take, take these, these coins. Uh, as compensation for, for what's happening to you. Daryl! I'm going to run back and grab him by the scruff of his neck and pull him. Okay. <laughs> so you just kind of yank him along and he's he's like trying to give money uh, to the shopkeeper. He feels guilty and you hear like the clink, 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 clink as he's I would have coins. come back. I would have come back. But we don't have time. Let's go. And he he comes along with you and you guys start bounding uh, up the street. Okay. Um, and the last kind of thing as you look back behind you is uh, the kind of portly shop, or, you know, cart owner just kind of shaking his head and uh, mouthing uh, what is most terribly insults. I do, I do actually feel really guilty. That's good. You take, you feel guilt as a, as a minor action. <laughs> actually, <laughs> I guess a it's saving, a free action. It's there free. a saving throw against guilt? <laughs> I don't like it. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll pick up uh, where you guys are next time. Okay, thank you. Urban fights in the streets with doppelgangers. Bow, bow, bow.